Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Discover BetMGM, the betting app sports fans in the Capital Region turn to for nonstop action all winter long. Take the excitement of football, basketball, and hockey to the next level with same-game parlays, exclusive signature bets, odds boost promos, and much more. Plus, now you can sign in, place bets, and manage your cash balance under the same BetMGM account in D.C., Maryland, and Virginia. With the same username and password throughout the DMV, it's never been easier to play with the king of sportsbooks. Download the BetMGM app today. BetMGM is an authorized gaming partner of the NBA and an official sports betting partner of the NHL. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly and offer resources to help you make appropriate choices. Please gamble responsibly. BetMGM.com for terms and conditions. Must be 21 years of age or older to wager. Washington, D.C. only. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Media. Hey everybody, Robert Evans here, and I wanted to let you know this is a compilation episode. So every episode of the week that just happened is here in one convenient and with somewhat less ads package for you to listen to in a long stretch if you want. Uh, if you've been listening to the episodes every day this week, there's going to be nothing new here for you, but you can make your own decisions. Welcome to It Could Happen Here, a podcast that we are recording for the first time. All of the audio worked perfectly. Uh, it was great. Uh, yeah, we the, 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 the society that has put multiple human beings on the moon did successfully produce functioning audio software. It's wonderful. Uh, yeah, and with me to uh, celebrate this is Carl Eugene Stroud, who's a language teacher and anarchist militant, and... Reed Angles, who's a bus driver and an anarchist member of the Center for Specifismal Studies. Yeah, both of you, welcome to the show. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you for having us for this wonderful celebration of audio recording technology. <laughs> it's all great. It's all wonderful. Uh, speaking of things that are wonderful, this is this is this is why they pay me the. Uh, am, I, am, I, am I legally allowed to say that it's uh, below market rate? So why they pay me the slightly below market rate bucks? Yeah, so speaking of wonderful, we are here to talk about a, I guess, putting things back together project, which is Militant Kindergarten. And I guess I guess we should start with talking about what Militant Kindergarten is and what it isn't in terms of like, it's not we're teaching, uh, <laughs> we're teaching small children how to take apart buildings. Yeah, so um, Militant Kindergarten is a multi-month study of a text and uh in that way you know we call it a seminar but it's not that much different than 
a reading group or a study circle or any of those kinds of things, uh, essentially what we're doing is we're using one text to uh, revisit and have conversations with different people um, that are at various, you know, points in the path of radicalization. Uh, We're, you know, distinctly trying to spread the word about the importance and necessity of militancy in our movements, but also uh, teach people about a specifismo, which is an anarchist current that comes out of Latin America. But it's also like, um, you know, in, in the socialist movement, anarchists can often be characterized by stereotypes that come from Marxists and that in the libertarian and anarchist movement, any kind of um, mass uh, anarchism, any kind of class struggle anarchism can also be characterized by, you know, uh, individualists and uh, insurrectionists. And so we mean to, you know, not convert people to a certain current of anarchism. We see this as a kind of grouping of tendency. So all the participants come from different ideologies. Uh, This is just a reading group. So you've got to apply this stuff, you know, outside of this. This isn't some kind of be all end all solution. We're not, uh, you know, educationalists thinking that this is going to, uh, be the first step in some like process that we're just already on. But at the same time, we think that educational space needs to be defended. Uh, that's why this is the third militant kindergarten. So, um, yeah, maybe I'll let Reed talk about some of the ones and how, how we've gotten here. Um, and yeah, kindergarten up to now. Yeah, sure. I think that's a good explanation. The, the group basically started off in the wonderful, amazing, complicated year 2020. Um, <laughs> in, in the wake of the uprising over the summer, both of us live in a relatively small town with maybe an outsized hundreds above its weight in terms of like activism and anarchism. There's, there's probably more anarchist tendencies here than there are anarchists. Um, <laughs> and something that we saw in the wake of the, the height of the uprisings was one, a huge amount of burnout that people weren't really addressing. The solution to burnout that we saw being proposed was just do it again, more, harder. And we also saw a the burnout as kind of coming from a lack of strategy and organization on the ground. People sort of repeating tactics because that's what you do. And that's what we were doing. So we're just going to try to keep doing it. And both of us were unable to participate in the the more uh, aggressive street actions that were going on at the time. So we decided we we individually needed to study and get better at our understanding of strategy and organization and try to rethink like some of the problems that had occurred and how to move on from there. And also to provide a space for people who are more active in different places, the chance to meet together and reflect in a non, um, non-urgent space where you could just like pause and learn and discuss a topic. So we were, yeah, we, we hit upon, we were both kind of simultaneously interested in the specifismo current from Latin America. And so we both just kind of decided, yeah, we want to read some of these texts. And we quickly came upon social anarchism and organization. And we thought like, wow, this is a really 
comprehensive introduction, not only to this tendency, but also to anarchism and social anarchism broadly. Like it really covers just the basic anarchist principles and theory up to history and organizational theory, strategy, tactics, ideology in a much uh, higher, more sophisticated and like, I guess, like modernized way than many other previous uh, documents we'd read. It's like if you took the platform, you know, the Machnavist platform. Uh, we should explain what that is because oh, I think yeah. a lot of people are not going to. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Going back. So it's it's the organizational platform of the Anarchist Federation of Rio de Janeiro, which is basically their foundational document. And it's a very comprehensive look at the kind of theory and strategy and work that goes behind, goes on behind founding an organization like that. It's similar to the anarchist platform written by the ex, the Machnavist in exile in Paris, the, the Ukrainian anarchist in exile after the, uh, the, the revolution in Russia. They wrote this platform saying anarchists should maybe be somewhat organized and unified in their tactics and their strategies and received a whole bunch of pushback from it, but founded the sort of the platformist current of anarchism. But really, when you go back to the platform, there's not a ton there. It's more of a document for organizing a like a military force in a already ongoing revolution, whereas what we found in social anarchism and organization is it's a much more broad kind of introduction to social anarchist organization that is more widely applicable to a variety of situations. Yeah. And, you know, okay, so we've covered Especifismo on here with Andrew once. I think we've talked about it a little bit in some other episodes, but yeah, do we want to get into what what about a specifismo is sort of different from older kinds of like well just like other anarchist tendencies and other sort of kinds of platformism and talk a little bit about how it sort of came about because it's it's one of the tendencies I guess that some people adopted in the US but I don't I don't think it's as famous as a lot of other tendencies here. Yes, so you know, a lot of the the motivation behind organizing the Center for Especifismo Studies, uh, this came after after us studying this text a few times locally. We decided to formalize this into militant kindergarten. And a lot of that came from the need to articulate uh, what is a specifismo uh, in English, because a lot of the resources, a lot of the ideas and writings come from uh, Latin America. And so they're uh, written in Spanish. A lot of the theory has been developed in Spanish. Uh, Especifismo originally comes from the Anarchist Federation of Uruguay. Um, in the 1960s, they began to articulate a kind of uh, organizational strategy that imagined what the way we've described it is uh, kind of two rails for a train and this train is uh, bringing this revolutionary rupture. So these two rails uh, are the social level, which includes all kinds of class struggle. Uh, this is class struggle against domination, 
exploitation and oppression and that the other rail is the political organization. And so this is um, the anarchist principles and ideologies that, um, yeah, I think we share probably pretty broadly with most all anarchist currents, at least, uh, you know, coming out of the socialist movement. But when it comes to um, the way to balance these and to keep them um, both working toward the same ends, we see a need to keep them theoretically distinct. And so a lot of what we've done at the Center for Especifismo Studies is try to articulate these ideas in English so that we can start to develop what that means here and not just sort of translate or uh, take a translation and sort of try to input an idea uh, into our own context. So, uh, like you said, like, I think that some of the, um, we could, we could take, for example, the Black Rose Rosa Negra Anarchist Federation in, uh, the U S that's the largest organization of specifist anarchists in North America. They, uh, are distinctly influenced by this current. They have sister organizations in Latin America and, um, but but uh, they're they're just one kind of uh, organization that's that's kind of known on a national level. And as far as planting its you know uh, ideas in North America, we're definitely still doing that work. So a lot of what we've done is also develop second hand uh, secondary resources. This includes like audio versions of this text, but also like uh, things we've produced through our study and through these uh, discussions that come out of kindergarten. So last year, for example, we made a, uh, a mini zine. There was like a, a kind of working group that worked on a mini zine to define some basic uh, terms and make something really, really, really basic and introductory to a specifismo. We also, um, I, I've written a few pamphlets, one of which is how do you say a specifismo in English? And so that is, yeah, exactly trying to address this, this idea. And, um, you know, some people, they, they hear a specifismo and they're like, oh, that's, you know, exotic and cool and like new. And that's a reason to be attracted to it. But then, you know, other people might hear that and they have kind of uh, other reactions where they sort of try to put it into a really specific box. I mean, what, what our understanding is, is that um, it's important to be able to acknowledge what current you're kind of plugging into, where your ideas are coming from. It takes a lot of pressure off of us to not feel like we're inventing everything and we're supposed to be coming up with like the most perfect, cool ideas. But it's also a, a humbling experience of like, yeah, we know about this because other people have done this militancy before us to make these things available for us, to have preserved these ideas. That's the political level of the two rails, right? So that's, that is preserving this so that it is possible to say, I have this opinion about a specifismo and it relates to my context in this way, or likewise that it doesn't, you know, if we don't have anyone doing that militancy to preserve those ideas, then it's actually not even up to people to be able to pick them up and use them the way that they see fit. One of the sort of barriers is, I think, kind of what you were alluding to of like the specifismo as a tendency in the U.S. is that it 
wasn't like it wasn't really it wasn't developed in the American context. And that has different sort of you know, that that has that 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 has sort of like a range of different effects. Um and what one of the things that I, I think is very interesting about it that I think is definitely a product of the context that it was developed in is the strategy of social insertion. Um, yeah, and I was wondering if you could talk a bit about social insertion and how you see that working in the U.S. and how sort of like how how do, how do we think about this sort of in the wake of 2020 and the kind of restructuring of what is what is sort of happening inside of social movements in the U.S. Yeah, I think the the 2020 lesson is very important for thinking about social insertion for anyone who doesn't know. It's just the practice of anarchists who are organized in the same organization being present in social movements within them, supporting them, trying to help them achieve their own goals rather than take them over or something like you would see in maybe a entryism from Trotskyists or something. Um, but yeah, I think one of the major problems that we ran into when we started reading this stuff is like social insertion requires there to even be social movements. Yeah, and and that, that was an issue in the U.S. for a long time because we didn't really have social movements in the way that like Latin America does. Right. Or when when we do, they're like extremely spontaneous or kind of chaotic or they're also they're, they could be extremely co-opted or managed by a political party, Democrats some socialist group, Republicans, whoever. And so that's kind of one of our major sort of projects of theoretical translation into North America. You can't just plug this into North America and say, okay, we're going to go join X social movement to achieve these goals and obtain this amount of influence there. Um, and some, we really have to start, I think what is useful about that problem is that it forces us to start really trying to theorize what actually is happening here, what social movement actually is there. And th- that, that leads us to start thinking about things more literally, like movement. What does it mean to be moving? What is the role of anarchists in movement? So we can think of an idea that we've developed is the idea of anarchists who are organized as anarchists. The role of them in in movement is to actually literally be moving between different kinds of spaces, different movements, and starting through their movement to generate a kind of flow and of of people and of ideas and energy and momentum, acting as a small motor within a big um, a big system, if you will, not driving it but getting things going. And so I think that's kind of more the level that we're at here in the U.S. is we still need to just theorize what is out there and how can we help it, how can we plug into it, how can we start getting things moving in a direction that is actually going to meet the needs of these movements or these movements that aren't yet articulated well. You know, you see this with like the rise of tenant unions and tenant organizing still in a very like nascent stage, but people are seeing that need and they're starting to get that moving from a variety of socialist tendencies. And I think, yeah, the idea is important in this context because we have to, we have to be finding 
these spaces, we have to be moving to them, and we have to be returning to our own spaces to be able to actually understand what we're encountering out there and figure out how to adjust course or um, move to something else or adapt to a new situation. Yeah, like maybe uh, similar to Reed said there, this idea that um, the politics need to be moving, that anarchism needs to be a movement, and that in that way, like we can't allow our ideas to be stuck in certain, you know, just stations or organizations or um, spaces that are friendly or that we're really familiar with. We need to be able to... uh, engage those ideas in the relevant spaces where we do live. That looks really different in different parts across the U S and North America. So the idea that, you know, we would be able to just simply take one thing and apply it uh, across the board would also like, uh, yeah, be really limited here. And so I think a lot of what we're, we're what, a lot of what we've seen in terms of the utility of a specifismo as a as an influential current in the politics uh, in leftist politics in North America is this uh, theoretical aspect and how we can see both like we learn more about social movements more about the necessity of them being popular more about popular power and at the same time as in, in doing that that shows us more about what is political unity what is uh, um, you know unity of strategy what is unity of theory what is uh, unity of um, commitment and that those things we want to, as we keep learning about them individually, that goes back to this train idea of there being two rails is we need them to be on independent cycles. You know, we know that, that social movements don't last forever, that mobilizations and uh, you know, um, insurrections will fade away, that there are ebbs and flows of the engagement. And that when we're talking about a massive popular level, we should expect that even more, right? Plenty of people will only, even if they're engaging militantly, only be engaging militantly with social movements, not with political ideas, not with political organization. And so the idea that that something needs to endure Someone even needs to be able to tell the story from the last time that things got spicy so that we understand even what happened without even necessarily having the the uh, critique or the analysis. Even just simply the retelling is something that is grossly missing from our our struggles in North America. And so that's where we see like there being a complete absence of of political organizing and especially when we think about being on an entirely different cycle. So that kind of goes back to kindergarten being an annual thing. And, you know, where we live, like in the winter, there's not a lot you can do. And so it kind of made sense to develop a seasonal pattern of this, right? Where like exactly as things are dying down, it's it's kind of like, well, the people who do still have capacity, the people who are still attempting to be active, how can we keep that little bit of movement moving and going? Uh, the idea of the, the the metaphor of a small engine, a small motor, is often used in especifismo, and that that's that's what the political level is trying to be: is a small motor, just assisting in something larger that's happening, but it needs to be connected to something larger that's happening. Yeah, and I think 
a key part of this for us that we've found is that in our context, there exists sort of these two levels to some extent. There are political organizations and there are social movements. But what is often missing, like we were struggling with this, trying to find the way into one or the other. And what we discovered is that like this kind of educational tendency of really open, really educational, really discussion-based learning kind of starts to generate that that movement between the two. Like by having this space open to uh, beginners and experts, so to speak, you're able to actually get more movement open between the two. So it opens up political organizations, people who have not participated in that before, don't have a way into it. And it open, opens up social movement to people who may be politicized, but are not organized in some sort of social movement. And it starts to mix everything together in this learning space where we can build trust as a learning community and assist each other in connecting these kind of two necessary levels of organization. I've been thinking a lot about how you were talking about how we we don't have any kind of organizational continuity between movements and the kind of disorganization and the loss of just memory that happens with that. And I think it's one of these weird things because you can find people who've been in like all of these movements, but it, it, if if you're relying on just you know, okay, well, you you can you can get the story of what really happened in Occupy Oakland if you know exactly like the right four people, and you can't like you can't say their names because like <laughs> like you know, I, and I mean, and this is this has always sort of been a problem with parts of social movements because I mean, there's stuff that necessarily has to be clandestine, like you know, and there, there's reasons for operational security, but it also just means the stuff gets lost, and yeah, I th- I think having having a like having a thing that goes as a way to transmit got a thing that goes wow incredibly technical language you know but having having an organization that can act as a bridge between these sort of moments and also is able to sort of you know allow, allow people spaces for discussion for reflection for learning that's also sort of a bridge between like a like i don't know i guess like capital p political organization and the social stuff is it's a it's a is a really interesting idea and yeah i don't know i think i don't know i think i think this is this is a very cool project and yeah i'm looking forward to seeing what else comes out of it as the the new session sort of approaches yeah i think what you're just saying about like how do you learn about what happened at occupy oakland without having to go through like three layers of signal chats or something to find the right person to learn from anonymously Everything is prefaced with allegedly this happened. Um, is is a real problem that we've we've thought about. Like I think a big thing for us that we've found is a role that we can play is that there is a need out there for there to be some sort of uh, we call it mask off anarchism. Like there needs to be a public facing approachable. Space where you can actually just learn about stuff. And yeah, there is definitely a need for operational security culture or for clandestine things, but that those things don't need to be everything. For those to even exist, you need 
levels that are more open to people. Otherwise, those things just become increasingly lost. They go down the memory hole, as they say, or the Latin American groups like to talk about anarchism becoming ghettoized further and further, like separated from mainstream society. And there's no ways in unless you like, you know, a guy. And so that was something that was a problem we were encountering and something that like from our particular circumstances, we felt like we could provide and maybe start modeling for people as a group. I think also, like you mentioned there, like this idea of uh, memory and um, what what Black Rose has referred to in their program as muscle memory, like for our organizations. This idea that like, I mean, organizing seems so mysterious to us because we don't have this like kind of active, like uh, living memory of, of how to do that. It's not just a thing we do by second nature, or like without without a... Um, really needing a lot of work. And so I think in, in that sense, like um, we could also think of there being two, two kinds of struggles going on where like um, on the social level, the struggle is the class struggle and the antagonists are the dominant uh, people in society. It is the ruling class. It is the, the status quo. It is the, the capitalist system. But uh, on the on the political level, there's also struggle because it's not about everybody, you know, just being one uniform block. It is about that struggle, though, not being uh, trying to topple each other, but instead trying to develop and and create unity. Uh, it's not find unity. It's not uh, uh, look for the people you have the most consensus with, because that in itself is even really limiting that we need to be able to form new agreement. We need to be able to find and struggle for that unity with people who aren't trying to just aim for a divisive end that there needs to be an antagonist on the social level, but on the political level, the goal is, is unity. It's not, uh, it's not struggle for the sake of, of taking down the opponent. And so in that sense, like something else that we do in, uh, in militant kindergarten and in the Center for Especifismo Studies is not just try to do a reading, but try to produce a reading, try to leave behind some kind of trace of our reading. That that's a, an important aspect of this. So all of our all of our sessions, we take thorough notes, and those notes are available to all the participants. People can go back through it later to uh, look at what was said if they missed a session or if uh, they'd like to follow along with those as they, as the conversation goes to help add, uh, you know, other aspects of support. Then what we do is we have a whole other team that goes through those notes afterward and produces a kind of internal journalistic uh, uh, write-up of what happened in that meeting. And so we will also be releasing those uh uh, this year uh, as part of our like kind of monthly uh, publishing that we'll be doing. So for people who are interested in this, when is it happening and how do you get involved? Uh, it starts on January 13th and it runs till April 20th of next year, 2024. And we're going to be holding the session on Saturdays, 2 to 4 p.m. in Pacific time, U.S., which is not the greatest time for everybody, but it's where most of us are based, kind of on the edge of time here on the West Coast. And the best way to get involved is to just send us an email. We have an 
email is asbestosbismostudies at gmail.com. And that's the way to sort of start the enrolling process. You just need to take the one step, send us an email, and we'll get you signed up and all the materials and Zoom link and all that stuff. Yeah, and we'll, we'll put the email in the description. Yeah, probably links to the uh, website too. I think on that note, unless you two have anything else that you want to say or plug. Uh, no, I think that's it. Yeah, good for us. Uh, I would like to see people there. It's going to be an interesting year. I can I can guarantee you that. <laughs> yeah, we're... More, yeah, like the, the literal year 2024, who knows what's going to happen. And even kindergarten is going to be pretty interesting. We've had a lot more people contacting us than last year. So it's going to be a pretty big and diverse group. So it'll be interesting to see kind of what everybody is able to produce out of that that gathering and learning space. Yeah, you know, maybe maybe another thing just to say real quick is just that even if somebody doesn't feel like they could make that time, uh, it's still worth reaching out to us. Um, we, you know, will be developing other other seminars and things in the future. And um, if you don't think that you'd be able to make it to all the sessions, like uh, don't worry about that either. Uh, that's part of why we do this every year is that we expect that, you know, working people without a lot of time uh, will need more than one year to, you know, get all this information. So we expect people to need to kind of be cobbling together a few sessions here and there for, for several times. And yeah, you're definitely welcome to do that and shouldn't feel as if it's like a kind of start and then you're stuck and afraid to start. So, yeah. Yeah. It's a sort of an endurance study group. So <laughs> just, yeah, we don't want anyone burning themselves out. Just do what you can start together and together. Yeah. It's, it sounds like it's going to be a great program and yeah, excited, excited to see what comes out of it. And yeah, if you want, if you, if you want to get your theoretical stuff in before fighting season presumably starts again around the election, uh, yeah, now is the time. <laughs> it's going to be really chaotic in the, for the next, like, long time. So this is this we'll is your opportunity now. Yeah, we'll need some good ideas to arm ourselves with. This, yeah. This one, it's going to be rough. Yep. And, yeah, on that note, uh, this has been Naked Happened Here. You can find us on twitter and instagram at fools on media etc etc um yeah go 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 into the world and learn and then use that to uh, make the world less god awful BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy last year by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Discover BetMGM, the betting app sports fans in the Capital Region turn to for nonstop action all winter long. Take the excitement of football, basketball, and hockey to the next level with same-game parlays, exclusive signature bets, odds boost promos, and much more. Plus, now you can sign in, place bets, and manage your cash balance under the same BetMGM account in D.C., Maryland, and Virginia. 
With the same username and password throughout the DMV, it's never been easier to play with the king of sportsbooks. Download the BetMGM app today. BetMGM is an authorized gaming partner of the NBA and an official sports betting partner of the NHL. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly and offer resources to help you make appropriate choices. Please gamble responsibly. BetMGM.com for terms and conditions. Must be 21 years of age or older to wager. Washington, D.C. only. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's it's another Chicago episode. It's It Could Happen Here, the podcast where things fall apart. Uh, I'm your host, Mia Wong. Uh, this is this is another episode about Chicago police departments who occupy a city groaning under its tyranny. Uh, and with you to talk about some absolutely batshit uh, Chicago police stuff and also how uh, Brandon Johnson, our mayor, is also shit, <laughs> is Raven, the Chicago journalist from Jinx Press. Hi, is our mayor ever not shit? <laughs> you know, no, it's always <laughs> shit. It's never not bad. It's never not bad. And it's always like, you know, the progressive darling who ran on promises and then slowly breaks them and, you know, breaks everyone's hearts over time. Yeah, I, I will. I will say Brandon Johnson Wasted absolutely no time on the heartbreaking part. <laughs> like he really, he really just wanted to rush that shit out. And so there's a lot of there's a lot of Brandon Johnson stuff that we could talk about, and we will want eventually. We're gonna do the episode on the migrant camp in the fucking uh, the, the, the 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 migrant camp in the the, the toxic waste dump, but. <laughs> that that's gonna happen next year. Right now, we want to talk about a different utterly insane Chicago thing. Well, this is actually a thing in other cities too. I wanted to talk about ShotSpotter. So I guess to start with, can you explain what ShotSpotter is for people who don't have it in their city or don't know? Well, it's in, I want to say like 130 different cities across the country. So a lot of people probably do have it, but it's a, it's a gunshot detection system. Um, so basically just, you know, through bunch of fancy tech stuff which we won't get into and i'm not even going to pretend to understand you know that side of it it's there are these audio sensors that are installed all around the city right and um in predominantly uh black and brown neighborhoods you know they're specifically in chicago there's actually a lawsuit currently up and coming filed by uh, the MacArthur Justice Center over the fact that they are primarily installed in black and brown neighborhoods and not on like the north side. And yeah, it's just a bunch of fancy little stuff that detects noises that are supposed to be gunshots, right? So any loud yeah. popping or, or banging sound, you know, could could potentially set them off. Yeah, and unfortunately, as anyone who's ever been in a city and had a car backfire knows, people are 
just indescribably dog shit at telling what is a gunshot and what is not a gunshot. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And I mean, th- there's so much evidence to like other than, I mean, our here in Chicago, like our office of the inspector general wrote like a whole report about all of shots, failures, but there's a bunch of other research out there across the country about how inaccurate this is. And, um, you know, it's generating tens of thousands of also like unjustified CPD deployments. Like, because when the alert goes off, the cops get deployed and, you know, it doesn't tell you anything about, uh, even if there was a gunshot, like who fired a gun, you know, all it's telling you is in this area, you know, this was determined. So you can imagine like, all of these, you know, police encounters happening in response to these alerts, like all the shit that could go wrong. Yeah, and it's CPD, right? Like the, C- the Chicago Police Department's <laughs> motto is shoot first, don't ask questions later. So right. this is a this is an absolutely terrible idea. <laughs> it's just sending all of these cops on random wild goose chases. Yeah, yeah. Well, and it's what happened with, um, I mean, most people probably remember the Adam Toledo shooting. Those cops you know, were initially assigned to patrol that area because it was designated as a violence box, you know, and ShotSpotter brought them to the alley, like where this 13-year-old kid was, you know, shot and killed by police because another, an older man was with him and fired a gun and then handed him the weapon. Yeah, and that's that's another one of the problems with this technology, which is that even if it does detect a gunshot, the thing that detecting a gunshot does and send it to the police is send a bunch of like absolutely unhinged murderers to a place and like make them incredibly paranoid and then, you know, have them in like deal with the situation mode. And what Chicago cops do when they're in deal with the situation mode is they take out a gun, they shoot a 13 year old and kill them. Yeah. Yeah. And the, you know, the officer that shot him too had had, this is like rarely talked about in the media. I think, I don't know. It just wasn't something that came up much when that was all happening. But like that officer had a weird incident that was recorded on body cam, like a a little bit before he shot and killed Adam Toledo. I don't remember if it was like months before, I don't know the timeline, but it was fairly close to that where he like pulled someone over at a traffic stop and was just acting really jumpy and strange. Uh, And it was kind of investigated as like, you know, an unjustified traffic stop. And and, and nothing happened with that, but it's just an example of of like how there were potentially warning signs because this guy was also like a war veteran, you know, and jumpy to begin with. Uh, And so, yeah, you're sending these guys into these areas who are already ready to go off at a trigger right yeah and you know and there, there's like there's no actual good outcome of this because like i guess arguably the best possible outcome is the cops show up there's nobody there and it turns out to have been a false alarm but that means we're paying the cops an unbelievable amount of money to do nothing and that's the best outcome right and the the way the alerts work also too is like unless the police file a complaint that an alert was false, like a false alarm, it's automatically flagged in the system as like a positive 
because there's all this algorithmic stuff that happens like with the the shot sorter detection where like yeah the the system detects it but then also it goes to like their I don't know their whole systems like researchers or whatever to kind of put it all together and like package a report about what happened and so unless the police complain and are like oh you know this one was false or this was a this one was wrong this was a firework this was a car backfiring and of course like CPD is not doing that yeah, because and I mean, and I mean, this is one of the problems with the system. Just inherently, even if even if you think that on some level this technology could work, is that both the company ShotSpotter and the police have an enormous inherent incentive to make like at at very least pretend that every single one of these detections is real. Because if you're a police officer, right, and you can point at, oh, hey, look at how many shots are being fired around the city all the time. You know, you need to give us more funding. This is incredibly useful for them. If you're ShotSpotter, you don't want everyone to know that your system detects like a bird dropping an acorn out of a tree next to your (laughs) sensor or whatever. Like you don't actually want people to know that your, your system brings up false positives all the time. and is actually basically completely useless. Right. Yeah. And so the incentive structure is just bad. It's just, it's only going to produce bad results. Yeah. Well, and it's kind of like somebody, I don't, I forget where I read this, but somebody likened it to if you had an informant working for you and they were wrong nine times out of ten would you still use them (laughs) well cpd would like to be fair (laughs) to be fair but like if you were a journalist and uh you had a source that lied nine times out of ten you know or was wrong nine times out of ten would you uh would you call them back would you trust that source you know well and the other thing too is this isn't even it's not even just like this is an informant right because you know, ShotSpotter is wrong an enormous percentage of the time. But the thing is, you don't have to pay informants $8 million a year, which is what we're paying <laughs> yeah. for this dog shit ShotSpotter system. Yeah, well, and I mean, the, the company itself also, like, they're, they're so embedded with what's going on, like, with police departments. You know, ShotSpotter is leveraging their own money to try to, like, win police contracts that include ShotSpotter. You know, they advise different police departments on how to respond to requests about shot spotter. So it's like it's not just like this, this, uh, I don't know, this neutral tool that's just like out there that they're just using. It's like shot spotter has this vested interest in uh, strengthening the police and vice versa. Yeah. And it, it gets into one of these very, very I mean, it's a very common thing for the cops. Right. But one of these unbelievably messed up spirals where like, yeah, like everyone, everyone involved has, you know, the, 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 the cops want, want more power. These guys want more money. And the more money you give them, the more money they have to then turn around again and put back into the political system to continue buying more power, which they can again, turn into more money every single time another contract comes up. Right. Right. And which they just, they just did. Brandon Johnson just gave them more money in their contract. Yeah, and we should talk about this because okay, so Brandon Johnson ran a weird campaign in respect to the police in the sense that he didn't really run a he didn't run an anti-police campaign, I guess. Like his campaign was pretty pro-police, but it also originally had things like taking cops out of schools. And very specifically, he ran on canceling the shot spotter contract. Which is a thing that everyone in like people in Chicago who aren't who don't live in like cop neighborhoods basically 
Like it's pretty popular to cancel this contract because it's, it's it's millions of dollars a year going to nonsense that just throws cops everywhere. And then he got into office and his budget still has the shot spotter shit in it. So oh, electoralism win. Yay. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was an explicit it was an explicit campaign promise. Like it wasn't just like, oh, we were hoping that he would do this because he's like our big movement guy. It was like he explicitly made it part of his platform was ending the contract with shot spotter. And uh, now he is not. And there's, there's some time left before the budget hearing. I think it's like, I don't know, like 55 days. I might be off by a few days there, but there's only around, you know, two months left. And, and since he's been elected so like the other thing, I mean, this is like the shady part too, is like, since he's been elected, he's been asked whether he'll extend the contract and he's just like refused to answer. Which is a really great politician stuff. Like, you know, you uh, you know, <laughs> your politicians being completely normal and nothing. Uh, everything is above board when they just straight up refuse to answer questions. Only good things ever result from that. <sighs> <laughs> yeah. And it's been there's been like a lot of uh, similar sort of just like. uh I don't know, lack of transparency kind of incidents with him over the last, however long it's been since he's been elected. God, it's been a long year. Uh, It's kind of like there's this pattern now. So, yeah, I I mean, there there were people who who kind of, uh, look, he was never like the abolitionist, like I'm going to abolish the police mayor. And like, I get that. I think a lot of people get that. Um, but there's a pretty big departure kind of between how he's approaching policing and what, yeah, a lot of movement people or leftists or abolitionists want, you know, every encounter with a cop is a, is a potential for violence. Right. And he's coming at it more from the side of like, well, we just need to rebuild trust in the police. And and the community just needs to, you know, like, we're just going to rebuild trust and we're going to we're going to get these bad cops out. We're going to have only good cops left. And then everything. I don't I don't I don't know what the logic there is personally, but but, the you know, the logic is that. We'll just have good police encounters then. And it's just like this refusal to acknowledge that, like, policing itself is a problem. Yeah, I mean, we are on year 50 of the mayor says we need to restore trust in the police. Uh, we'll get rid of the bad cops and everything. Like, year 50, we are on... What what number of torture scandals are we on since people first started saying this? Like, I, it's just... Right. We shouldn't be laughing at torture, but it's like, yeah, it's like every... I don't know, every month there is a new Chicago police scandal. I literally cannot keep track. Yeah, and okay, so we're we're going to talk about one of those scandals but first uh we're gonna talk about ads i was gonna do like a you know what else is a scandal but i don't know it's really late (laughs) i've been up for an outrageous number of hours and we are back so okay speaking of chicago police scandals there is a lot i mean the CPD is always having scandals because Chicago cops are just evil. Um, but yeah, do you want to talk about the specific shot spotter one that we're having right now? Yeah, I mean, well, 
there there are other Chicago police shot spotter scandals, um, but no, the most this most recent story, you know, that just came out. Uh, there's a political uh, journalism site slash blog. They're also our homies. We've done a lot of work with them called People's Fabric, and and they wrote, you know, uh, an analysis of some videos that they obtained of. What is like essentially a, a CPD gang? I mean, everybody's heard of like the LAPD gangs. Well, not everybody, but I'm sure a lot of listeners have followed the the story out of out of LA with like the sheriff's deputies gangs, um, just roaming around and and committing uh, horrible acts against people and you know in these sort of like crews of of bad cops and and this is definitely not the first instance of something like that happening in Chicago, but you know, there were just a lot, there was a lot of video evidence against these guys. One of them has been indicted. I don't know if the other three have, um, but yeah, they were just driving around basically terrorizing this community. You know, a lot of just unlawful stops, stopping people on the street, shaking them down for cash, drugs, and a lot of guns. And they were filing false reports about found guns. So like they would stop somebody, take their gun, and then log it as like a gun that was found. And, um, it, you know, in one instance, they said that they were a mile away from where a shot spotter alert had gone off and claimed that they looked around and just happened to find a gun on the ground. It, they had taken the gun from from a woman, you know, it, they didn't find it on the ground, but they were able to use the fact that there was a shot spotter alert that went off in that area as uh, like a way to cover their tracks, basically. Yeah, and this is something, so we talked about on the show, like, oh God, was that like two years ago now maybe it was a year ago a while back we talked about on this show um the chicago's uh used to have this police unit called special operations session sos which uh, mm-hmm. was disbanded after it was revealed they were doing literally the same thing which is they would go up to people right. and rob them and right one of chicago has one of these scandals about once a like once a decade there's like a big one of these and we're kind of due for one we haven't had a really big one of these specifically there's an entire section of the cpd that's just a burglary or a drug ring so i i suspect we're gonna find out more about this stuff because it's it, it's about time that another one of these turns up but yeah i mean they were just like just rolling up on people just going give me your gun and then driving away and saying don't tell anyone which is <laughs> really <laughs> Uh, really yeah well and like also for for seemingly no reason in like some instances like there are i mean we look we can't know all of their motivations for everything and a lot more is going to come out i'm sure like in the court proceedings but it's like were they trying to pad the gun retrieval statistics and or were they trying to do something else? You know, they were like a tactical team. So I presume, I mean, I think it's the case that like there are certain gun retrieval statistics that CPD wants to make, but you know, the other stuff, like obviously taking cash from people, you know, like, like there's yeah. other things they were doing, you know, and, and there've always been, look, there have, 
I'm not going to allege anything that isn't proven in this specific instance, but I will say that there have always been rumors about Chicago police officers specifically taking things like guns to like sell back, you know, to gangs basically. And same with drugs, right? Um, you know, these guys were, were, were logging some of them at least, but what, what if there were ones that they weren't logging? Like, we don't know. I mean, this is just what we know happened and what was caught. And I mean, they were (laughs) dumb enough to like have some of this caught on their body cams. It's like they were turning their cameras off for like some parts of these stops, but like not others. Or like the camera would be on and there's like, you know, cash and drugs. And then like, oh, the camera goes off. And it's like, well, (laughs) any logical person can deduce what may have happened here. Like, why are you turning your camera off? Right. Um. And so, yeah, there have always been rumors about kind of like what these crews driving around are like ultimately doing with this kind of stuff. And I think it just it varies depending on them. But I would also add, you know, the what you mentioned, the special operations section, you know, we only recently learned through like a Sun-Times investigation into all the Chicago cops who were on the Oath Keepers membership role. Oh, and a number of those guys were in uh, SOS, actually. So that's yeah. a fun little fact also. <laughs> yeah, that, that's another one of the another episode in the endless parade of of Chicago <laughs> Police Department scandals. Like, yeah, a bunch of these are in far right militias, um, which is this <laughs> it's this really interesting. So we, we did an episode pretty recently that was talking about David Graeber. One of one of the one of the points that he makes in this essay on on Batman and the and the problem of constituent power, which is a a wild thing to be citing in a police thing. But you know, one of one of the points that he makes is one of the one of the sort of key like fascist convergences is this cooperation between the police, the far right, and organized crime. And the CPD is this incredible nexus of it, right? I mean, you it's literally the same person is all three of these things at the same time. It is a cop who is in a far right militia who is also like literally just doing organized crime at the same time. That's really. Yeah. <laughs> you You used to have to sort of like make metaphors and you no longer have to do that. The metaphor just is real. You're just physically describing the event. It's really something. Yeah. I mean, I, I, when you when you really think about it, I think policing in and of itself is just like a cult like anything else. And it makes sense that like the same people who would gravitate towards like militia groups and like white supremacist groups, any any like, I don't know, group where people kind of have those like hardline beliefs about the world um and then it's also just like a lot of these guys are like um especially the ones on like tactical teams they're all like fucking like traumatized war veterans you know they all have kind of these long backstories of like military service and and just like to, to get onto like special ops or like a tactical unit or, you know etc they, they tend to look for people with military experience not always but like frequently um and so there's also that intersection there too of like militarism and abroad and then like policing at home, right? Yeah, and that's a really common thread. I mean, just in like across the entire world, this is a thing where like 
the 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 police off like the police groups that are the most likely to go completely rogue and either just start murdering people randomly or turn into organized crime things like are these special operations units there, there was like in 2020 there were these huge protests like anti-police protests in nigeria that were specifically about trying to get one of these special operations like police special operation things uh like abolished because the special operations guys just kept shooting everyone and this mm. you know like every, every single like this happens just everywhere in the world is that these it is like you know i mean like, obviously normal cops also do crime and we talked also in another episode about <laughs> some kind of normal cops who did a cartel in like the the 2010s uh but the, the special operations groups go off the rails at a rate that is staggering which you would think you would think someone in government would look at this like even, even if you're a pro-police person you would look at this and go wait maybe it's a bad idea to have specifically four in these units that every single time turn into a cartel but no no they never do this because the point of cops is not to not form cartels. Well, I think also, too, there's like a very, uh, I don't know, I guess, neoliberal sort of line of thinking about like policing and how like we really, really need like the tactical high skill kind of units, right? Like there's always like we're giving the cop, we're always giving the cops more money and that's for training. Training is a big justification for why we're always giving them more money but so is like you know skills and sort of technology and like i think um as we're dealing with i don't know like mass shootings and like all of this really horrible stuff just like going on around us at all times too now it's like it's a really i think um easy way to justify policing to people is like under the guise of these like tactical units or or units with like a lot of firepower to deal with like really really bad guys quote right like you know maybe those people might be like oh we've like fewer cops patrolling our neighborhoods you know we're kind of we get like you know black lives matter or whatever but they're like but we really need to you know have the big guns ready for when something bad comes to our neighborhood and so i think that's also like a a sticking point for a lot of people on the on the way to like actually thinking about abolishing the police too is like what would we do without these units of guys with like all these skills and all these crazy weapons to like help us if, if a, if a bad guy comes. And um, of course the guy, like the bad guys are those guys. <laughs> like it's the same yeah. guys. <laughs> well, and there's the more cynical side of it too, which is like, you know, if you're, if you're the mayor of Chicago, it's like, well, someone has to shoot the black Panthers, right? Like you need, you need to have guys whose job it is to <laughs> like when when you know when like revolutionary movements start up you need like someone has to start shooting those guys so uh, yeah. yeah so i i want to go back to talk a bit more about the the like shot spotter and the budget stuff that's been happening because so <laughs> the current <laughs> the current budget i uh, has what is it? I think it like doubles the 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 annual raises of that that cops were getting. Is that, is that the right number? I don't know if it doubles, but I read that it was actually wait. Yeah, so it's it's five percent up from like two point five. So yeah, it's doubled. It's also the largest package of raises for any city employee union in modern history. I mean, I'm directly quoting a better government <laughs> analysis, but, but, but yeah, no, like literally it is, it is an enormous 
It is an enormous race. And, and here's the thing. The cops were thrilled with this contract. Uh, the head of FOP, John Catanzara, who is just like a racist, misogynistic, horrible, just like garbage dump of a person, you know, was thrilled with, with this contract was thrilled with this being passed, you know, and that's like number one sign that your mayor sucks is when like the cops are thrilled about something he did. <laughs> like, uh, so, so yeah, I mean, it's, it's a huge amount of money. There's, there's a bunch of other stuff in it, like, you know, salary grade changes and like stipends for stuff and bonuses. And, uh, there's some changes to like the body worn camera policy too, which are kind of concerning. Um, but, but ultimately it's like, yeah, Brandon Johnson is now the fund, the police mayor. Like, I don't know how you can say that he's not when you, when you look at this, like this is just handing the cops more money. Yeah. And Chicago cops are already just unbelievably dog shit overpaid. Chicago teachers are unbelievably underpaid. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, we are, we are once again, paying a bunch of people to rob us it's really it's it's good stuff yeah and and they they get a lot of time off too i mean look they have a they have a ton of benefits there's a ton of you know privileges and and things that that the cops get but it's kind of like he he could have given them slightly less money (laughs) like it was almost this contract almost feels like the way I've seen some people describe it is it almost feels like an act of like goodwill towards the cops. Like an almost like I was like, I'm giving you this thing that you really want in the, in the hopes of like, I don't know. I don't know what he's trying to get out of it. I mean, I don't know what, what the motivation is, but it's like, you could have done, you could have done less and you're going for like a lot. So what's, what's the deal there? And you know, the new superintendent, too, is, like, hugely concerning. He picked a guy who's, uh, like, an expert in surveilling communities ahead of, like, the DNC coming next summer. Uh, the former head of the Counterterrorism Bureau, you know, like, it's just, it's a lot of really disappointing moves, and I think a lot of people were really hoping to see i guess a more abolitionist kind of streak but but ultimately it's like he ran as a liberal like we knew this was coming but uh, there was like almost like taking advantage i guess of like movement groups to sort of get get the power behind him um during the campaign but look our alternative was also like an evil like lying maniacal paul vallis so it's just like a shit sandwich. It's like bad choices all around, right? Yeah, and I mean that just is Chicago. I mean it's just Illinois. Electoral politics in general is a choice between the guy who gives the police more money and the other guy who gives the police more money. So <laughs> yeah, it's not yeah, good. Exactly. Again, it really seems like we're going to get more shot spotter of this technology that is wrong over ninety percent of the time. So it's great. It's really well. Uh, there's a few months left. I mean, hopefully, look. Hopefully, this is. I, I don't know. There's arguments to be made for and against harm reduction. I guess, and whether it's like a worthwhile goal, but maybe there's still a, like a shot at like at least getting this part scratched out. I mean, 
there is, like I said, like this big lawsuit. Um, and if nothing else, you know, perhaps he and his administration could be concerned about just like, you know, the bad press around it. <laughs> if it, if it's included and so many people are opposing it, but this is also an administration that like didn't care about the bad press that came with like saying we're building a detention camp on polluted land. So. Yeah. Well, look, look. Like this is this is this is the thing that that the 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 fight over the police budget is distracting from, which is that we need to find a second toxic waste dump to build the migrant concentration camp on. So you know, pr- pr- progressive progressive values are getting are happening either way. Look, I frequently said all mayors are bastards. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> Corny, but but I think um, you just. It's fine. Look, it's fine to vote, I guess, if that is your thing. Just don't convince yourself that once you leave the voting booth that, like, the struggle is over. Because whatever happens, like, this person, this authority figure in charge is your enemy. Like, it doesn't matter how nice he is. It doesn't matter how many jokes he cracks. Like, whatever, whatever you're trying to, like, resist or like liberate like this person is going to stand in your way just by virtue of being the mayor like it's baked into like what that is so i think it's just a matter of being like clear-eyed about that rather than like convincing yourself that you can somehow like co-run the city like with the government yeah i mean i'm gonna okay i'm gonna take a a shot at a city on the other side of the world but fuck it, I'm still mad about this. Okay, so the 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 nominal best case scenario for this inside an electoral framework was when uh, Barcelona and Camus, which is this uh, sort of left wing platform in Barcelona, made of a bunch of ex anarchists, I uh, like managed to get managed to get a sort a semi stable majority on the city council. And then the first time they got their mayor elected, the first thing that that fucking mayor did like a week into office was she knew where all the squats were in Barcelona. And the first thing she fucking did was she knew which immigrant squat didn't have enough community support behind them to stop them from getting evicted. And she had them evicted. So, you know, this is what happens when you put activists in charge. Um, they, they do a more efficient job of, uh, of being the kind of insurgency. So, Oh my god! Yeah, this is this is this is what you're getting into. Oh my god! Well, uh, yeah, and I mean, then it also becomes like its own smokescreen, you know, like uh, just using the fact that, like, oh, I was elected by activists or like I was elected by movement people, so like you know, I'm on your side, and, and just using it as like a shield against like every move and being like, well, I know this looks bad, but like you guys know, like I'm 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 your guy. Like, I'm one of you, like, like, just trust me. Like we're doing this for the, for the right reasons. It might look bad, but because I'm your guy, you know, it's okay. I mean, it's the same thing with like fucking uh, Biden and the, and the border wall now. I I think ironically, our episode on that is going to be the episode that comes out right before this. So (laughs) wait, sorry, sorry. Two episodes. Sorry. It'll it'll be two episodes before. Yeah. Oh, and and two episodes after. Well, it's also going to be border wall shit. So yeah, border wall bad. Fuck Biden for border wall. Well, but it's like it's Biden's border wall. He's doing all this shit. And then, you know, it's just if it was Trump, we know what the response would be from 
supposed progressives. Yeah, don't don't let people like put a coat of paint on a turd and hand it to you and be like, no, it's good. Actually, we don't have to do this. Right. But I mean, also the the border wall. God, do you remember there was a brief flash of time in October when when Brandon Johnson and his team announced they were going to visit the border wall? <laughs> and then it, it only lasted like 24 hours, 72 hours. I don't know when, but but at some point, then they like very quickly reversed the decision when they realized like how bad that would look. As we have like, like at that time, there were thousands of people in police, like thousands of migrants who had, who had traveled here and staying on police station floors. And there was like, they were going to have this publicity stunt where they went to visit the border wall. And then they changed their minds about it. And we're like, oh yeah, this is probably a bad idea. But it's become this, this like pilgrimage site. I mean, like, I know AOC went there. It's like liberal politicians, like, go there to be like, oh, this is so terrible. And then they, like, you know, just kind of let Biden make it worse. Yeah. So the, this this has been uh, this, this this has turned into the uh, liberal groups elected on big promises. Make your life worse episode. <laughs> well, this has been Naked Happened here. You could find us in the places uh, where can people find you? Uh, just, you know, on the hell site, which I know you're back on now. Um, unfortunately, <laughs> unfortunately, yeah. You know, we have jinxpress.org per site and then yeah, Twitter, Instagram, all that stuff. Yeah. So go, go check out the drinks press people. They do, they do great work and yeah. Cops bad. Cops bad. Cops always bad. Cops keep being bad. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Discover BetMGM, the betting app sports fans in the Capital Region turn to for nonstop action all winter long. Take the excitement of football, basketball, and hockey to the next level with same-game parlays, exclusive signature bets, odds boost promos, and much more. Plus, now you can sign in, place bets, and manage your cash balance under the same BetMGM account in D.C., Maryland, and Virginia. With the same username and password throughout the DMV, it's never been easier to play with the king of sportsbooks. Download the BetMGM app today. BetMGM is an authorized gaming partner of the NBA and an official sports betting partner of the NHL. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly and offer resources to help you make appropriate choices. Please gamble responsibly. BetMGM.com for terms and conditions. Must be 21 years of age or older to wager. Washington, D.C. only. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. 
Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi everyone, it's James, and today I've got a two-part episode for you. Initially, I'd planned to have my friends Emmett and Dave talk to me about the shelters that we've all been building in Hakumba uh, because the weather's getting worse and worse. But um, we were able to connect with Amos, who is one of the migrants who has spent time in outdoor detention, sadly, and then in indoor detention, as you'll hear. And I really wanted to sort of refocus this episode on sharing Amos's story because I think as I've said countless times, right, that if we don't center migrants in our reporting about migration, then we're doing it wrong. And so you will hear introductions uh, from Dave and you will hear introductions from Emmett and you'll hear a little bit from them next episode about how we're building the yurts. But we'll we'll bring you that episode another time because I wanted this episode to be mostly about Amos's migration journey. Hello, everybody. It's me, James. Uh, I am hosting It Could Happen Here Today again. And uh, I'm joined by my friends Amos and Emmett, uh, and potentially later our friend David. Um, we're going to talk today again about the situation in Hidakumba. Amos is, is one of the people who was detained in the outdoor detention sites and is going to explain some of his experience. And then Emmett is someone who has been working with a group of people, including myself, to build shelters for migrants, to build slightly more permanent slightly more windproof shelters. Um, unfortunately, Border Patrol has taken upon themselves to instruct migrants to destroy those shelters. And so we're going to talk about how we built them, what we learned when we're building them, and unfortunately, the fact that uh, they have been destroyed. Um, so I'm going to ask my three guests to introduce themselves. Uh, David is here now, so we'll start with uh, you, Amos, and then uh, Emmett, and then David, just uh, Tell us who you are and anything you think is relevant about yourselves, I guess. Uh, thank you for, for the invite. I appreciate the opportunity to, uh, to add whatever I can to this very, very important subject. Uh, I happen to be, um, I call myself an accidental uh, illegal immigrant, if you want to put it that way. Uh, for Due to some family circumstances, I found myself following a... The, the the new migratory road, I mean, road that has uh, taken me through, I lost count, 10 or 12 countries, um, starting from North Africa uh, all the way to uh, the border uh, with, uh, with the United States. Uh, so that's me. And, uh, what, you know, I'd let, I, mean, I would, I would uh, love nothing more but to add to this conversation. Thank you, Amos. Hi, my name is Emmett. Um, I am a volunteer with Borderlands Relief Collective. And then David, would you like to finish up by introducing yourself? Hi, my name is David. I'm a volunteer with Borderlands Relief Collective, as well as Detention Resistance. I do uh, water drops, and I've also been helping out as a volunteer in the uh, Border Patrol open-air detention sites, doing... Uh, work as a medic and um, helping out building these shelters. Great. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, thank you so much, everyone. So I think 
everyone will be interested in hearing Amos's story. So as far as you're comfortable sharing, Amos, and there's no need to share anything that you're not comfortable with or, or don't want to share, um, uh, can you tell us about your journey from North Africa to the United States? And I think we'd be particularly interested in like how people are finding out about these, obviously these big gaps in the wall that, that are in Hakumba and how people are ending up there from all over the world now. Right. Well, buckle up. It's a, it's a, it's a long journey, uh, James. It's a long one. Uh, so for me personally, uh, it, it started with uh, an, a, 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 um, sort of a, an accidental separation with, uh, from my family, my wife and kids for, uh, for reasons, uh, unfortunate reasons, had to go, to go back to the United States. And I was, not, I was denied a visa to join them. Uh, they went for uh, initially for um, to mourn the lo the loss of uh, a uh, brother-in-law. I mean, a brother-in-law, and uh, unfortunately, uh, I was not able to uh, get there by obtaining a visa to do so. So I spent six, seven months arguing with the embassy. Was not given uh, any legal reasoning for why my visa was denied. I've lived in the United States for over 16 years. I've had uh, a clean criminal record with one uh, arrest and release. And it was part of a protest that really that, that happened in Los Angeles and we were released right away. And basically, uh, I left uh, in 2015 with, uh, I'd like to think, with clean hands, no, no issues. And then going back to Tunisia, where I where I uh, where I was with, uh, with my new family. Anyhow, so so basically, I was denied visa. Uh, I, I really wanted to do. I've never done anything illegal in my life. I wanted to do the the legal route, the following what's what's been always told, like you know, follow the legal route. Don't don't come illegally. So so that was not even a, a question in my mind. You know, I, you know, the wife is American. The kids are American. I mean, I just it shouldn't be. An issue, but uh, I really was confronted with. I mean, I I can safely say by by now it's biased. It's uh, it's it's got to be some racism just by 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 deduction, really. I because when you run out of reasoning, uh, you have to ma start making these sad and you know sad conclusions. So yeah, so basically, you know, again, that that was uh, that took me on a long and painful depression. An anxiety and a cocktail of mental health issues that I'm still actually dealing with right now. And yeah. it took my kids, my two kids, my beautiful kids through therapy and they're still going through therapy. My wife is going through therapy. I'm going through therapy. And it, it took, it, it blew apart this family. And we're still trying to figure out why so much, you know, nothing but, can define it but hate, really. really. There's no other way of putting it. So, um, and again, I just, uh, the discussion with my with my friends in America has been very difficult because they have no understanding or concept of what a you know the diplomatic corps is doing and what is the these embassies are doing because there is no there is no access to them by Americans it's just usually foreigners who do and that really creates like this black hole of tax money going to these um, embassies. And then what they're doing is just, just with a stroke of a pen, yeah, yes or no, no explanation. You can't 
sue, you can't appeal, you can't do it's absolute power. And then you know I'm 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 mentioning this the the, the embassies because through my journey, through this mm-hmm. long and painful journey, I've met time and time again other fellow immigrants who again tried to go through the legal route, were denied with no reason, with no like no yeah. written reason, no no valid reason. So again, it, it, it you know this this discussion on and on on and off again, and, and you know among American citizens as to why people are showing up in the border. Well, I mean, at least in part, what I see is no accountability whatsoever to the embassies. Like time and time again, you have these embassies denying people who are trying to do it the right way, trying mm-hmm. to do it. They either have family or work or whatever. And they're denied time and time again. And then you have, at le- you know, in the hundreds of thousands going through that process. And of course they try, they try, and then eventually they have no choice. So I'm not saying this is the only explanation, but it's a big part of it. I've, I've t- spoken yeah. from for people who are crossing and who are on the way from anywhere from Brazil to Colombia to Ecuador to Panama to Nicaragua to um, uh, Guatemala to uh, Belize and, and Mexico. All all across, I've I've, got, I've come across so many people. And they, you know, at least, I mean, my little humble math, I would say 50 to 60% have tried through embassies, but unfortunately, you know, that, you know, that they just turned down. Yeah. So, uh, this is an issue that is not talked about. This is an issue. They really get, get away with scot free. I mean, they really don't, there's zero kind of, I mean, they are gods. <laughs> I mean, the ambassador have zero accountability. No, I mean, he, he is absolutely, he has all the power. And no accountability. I mean, rarely you see ambassador being recalled by Congress. Rarely you see an ambassador being questioned. Hey, why are these uh, visa demands being declined? Why? What are you doing about it? All that stuff. Anyhow, so so this is this is some of the stuff I want to add to the conversation because nobody has ever mentioned this. Nobody talks about this. Yeah. So uh, uh, yeah. It's very important. I think your experience is it's far from unique, as you've said, right? I have seen hundreds of people carrying visa rejection letters come across the southern border. They've shown them to me, right? They are people who have been victims of some of the worst things that can happen to human yeah. beings, and they've survived yeah. them, and, and we've still refused to give these people a safe place, so they've had to take their journey in a more dangerous way. I mean, I didn't see a single... Brown person in the, at the at the embassy. It's all white. I, I, again, I'm I'm I'm. I, I hope you guys don't feel like I'm being like too. I'm just being honest because I see it and I'm I'm, I'm up to date of on, on what people are talking about and all the discussions. And I see it like you know almost of a level of a of a, a right wing supremacy style. Like you know, I mean, it's yeah. just it just you feel it. You feel it. It's there. You have to be a quote-unquote brown person or a minority person to feel it. I don't expect others to understand it, but we we feel it. And, I, and this is a discussion I've had in detention with a lot of the fellow detainees. There is that sense. There is a sense that, you know, we're being looked down at, not on our merits, but on, you know, a little bit of, you know, assumptions because of where you're from. Assumptions, like you go in and it's already baked. It's already baked. It's already... And this is me. I've, I've had a visa from the U.S., for 16 years. I mean, it should be a slam dunk, you know? So my, my two kids are American. My wife, my wife is American. 
We are, until today, are so confused as to why the denials happen. I mean, I've called Congress members, and David was with me today when I was at the Congress member uh, Schiff, Adam Schiff, in Burbank, mm -hmm. California. And we, you know, even they don't have, have an answer as to why the denial happened. And then, you yeah. know, uh, I mean, to, to close my personal issue, James, mm -hmm. it's interesting because I was told that perhaps you were uh, illegally in the United States between 2013 and 2015. And then, but they can't say for sure that was the reason. Uh, but at the, in, in detention, when they, when they did all the, the research on me, none of that existed. None of that. There's none of that. They released me because they have nothing against me. Nothing. Yeah. And, this is, and this is the USCIS. This is the immigration service. Not the embassy coming up with some, some of these, you know, bogus ideas. You know, so again... It's a mess, and I feel like you know the, 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 this, the, this, these embassies need to be looked into more because the border patrol ends up feeling the blunt of, of, of all this. But where does it start? Where is the source? There, it's always the question of where is the source. Where the source is, yes, there's economic issues, there is, there is, there is uh, uh, physical abuse, there is all kind of stuff. But then also there's tax dollars being spent in the billions, in the billions, hundreds of billions on these diplomatic cores. I mean, to be fair, my journey was not, was not as difficult as many, 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 many stories that I've heard. Heartwarming, I mean, really heartbreaking stories. My journey really, um, you know, I'm, I'm somewhat, have a, somewhat of a sophisticated life in the sense that, uh, you know, I spent a lot of time. Again, I, we wasted, we, most of the time that we wasted was waiting on the embassy because they kept on dragging and dragging their feet six, seven months waiting while my kids are crying on the phone and, you know, we don't have the income to, uh, to be able to, be able to have them come back to, 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 to Tunisia where I was. So anyhow, um, so yeah, I started by researching, researching, reading a lot of articles, researching, uh, as far as, uh, North Africa, the, the route that is being used right now by mostly by a lot of Mauritanians and, uh, West Africans is, goes through, uh, Turkey. Uh, uh, and then from Turkey, they're going to Nicaragua because Nicaragua, Managua, the capital of Nicaragua, they have um, allowed for visa on arrival. Before, and then from and then from Managua, uh, there is literally almost like travel companies doing packaging packages for upwards to six, seven thousand dollars from there to. Uh, and then six, seven thousand dollars from Nicaragua, but from, but before Nicaragua, there's at least three, four thousand dollars. So I'm told by, uh, I think, uh, uh, yeah, the four Mauritanians that were detained. I'm told about ten thousand dollars, which comes down to their local currency, about forty-five thousand of their lo local currency, which is yeah. a lot. I mean, yeah. a lot. So uh, they, so like I said, so they managed to get the flights to. Nicaragua, uh, Managua has visa on arrival for 30 days for North Africans. And then from there, you got literally uh, the journey through, I don't know, coyotes, whatever you want to call them, uh, facilitators, whatever. Uh, Well-established with buses through El Salvador, through Guata Honduras, Honduras, El Salvador, Guatemala, and then through Mexico. So that's the route that's been, you know, uh, upwards of, Six, seven thousand Mauritanians and West Africans, as far as the last articles that I've read, have taken that route. So I, I looked into it. I couldn't afford it, to be honest with you. This is just, you know, I was sending money to 
my kids and, and, and wife because she had to be on welfare. She just arrived there and she had to keep the kids at school and there's a lot of struggle. So I had to kind of uh, try to help with that. On the same time, I was waiting on the embassy and we, we, you know, and the wife was calling them to see if, can we expedite? Can we do this? Can we do this? But they were literally rude and, and you know, treated her like a second class citizen. I don't know why. We still can't figure that out. Uh, anyhow, um, so another route right now, which is a difficult route, is through Brazil because Brazil has, uh, uh, I don't know if you guys know, um, and I think they do that for Americans too. Yeah. So Brazil is has sort of uh, I don't know the word, but the equivalency. That means if you impose a visa on Brazil, Brazilians will uh, uh, impose a visa on you. They do that to Americans too. Yeah. So, so you know where I'm from, they don't have a visa to uh, as far as uh, for Brazilians. So we don't. So a lot of Africans can go to Brazil and from Brazil take the the route uh, all the way. So. David mentioned uh, the Amazon Strait, where they cross the jungle for, mm -hmm. from Colombia to Panama and so on and so forth. That is Darien. I mean, I, I'm yes, the Darien, the famous Darien. Yeah. So that, that is to me personally. Oh man, it gives me chills because the, the two or three guys that one of them did it on his own with Google Maps. Man, I don't know Jesus. how the hell he did it. I have no clue how he did it. I am. I was listening and trying to understand them. Oh, it was just uh, heart heartbreaking, you know, the, the the suffering. So, but yeah, through Brazil and then uh, Colombia and then and keep on going that way. That's another route. Uh, for me, uh, again, I booked flights. I, uh, I I didn't go through that trouble, to, to be fair. But I've had some issues with visa. Visas because uh, North Africans don't get a lot of visa access around that, uh, Latin America. We don't have a lot of embassies there. We don't have a lot of uh, trade. We don't have a lot of commerce between our countries. So it's kind of an unknown, uh, an unknown commodity in a sense that you know everything is is, is you know is new. Uh, for me, I was able to get a visa to uh, Colombia, and I'm very grateful for to choose Colombia because it's uh, it's, it's affordable. It's, it's it's been a good experience for myself to get out of, uh, I mean, get closer and on the same time, uh, f figure out the lay of the land and understand where, where I'm going. So that was, I'm, I'm grateful for that. And then from there, my goal was to get a visa to Mexico. And a lot of, and most of my American friends get, uh, are still confused as to why I would need a Mexican visa. That's a whole other discussion. And then the Mexican visa has become extremely difficult, almost as difficult as the American visa because of pressure from the United States to stop the flow. So. Uh, we, we, again, we end up making it very difficult for people who want to legitimately do this. Mm -hmm. So finding an appointment for a Mexican uh, embassy, then you find out which embassy of Mexico has appointments available. Some of them don't have ever. Some of them have them two years from now. Some of them have them, you know, uh, for a particular visa, but not the other. Anyhow, so for me, it was Colombia. And then... Um, I, I found an appointment in, in, for, for a Mexican visa in Belize. Uh, but unfortunately, I ended up in, you know, going from Colombia to Panama to uh, Nicaragua to Guatemala and then Belize because Belize has not a lot of uh, flights uh, from Latin America. 
And then when I got to Guatemala, all the previous countries allowed me to transit without a problem, but Guatemala decided to put me in a detention uh, for almost 40 hours uh, and then wanted to return me back to, to original country because they, yeah, so I'm like, I'm, 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 my plane departs in a few hours. I'm going to Belize. Why are you doing this? Please. I'm not, I don't need a visa to, to Guatemala. I'm not going to Guatemala. Nothing. No discussion. Okay. Just they threw me in there, cockroaches, you name it, the whole enchilada. I mean, no food, no water, no nothing. I mean, you know, it's just uh, sad, very sad, very sad, very sad. Yeah, that was a terrible. really bad experience. And then so I was sent back to Panama, then from Panama to Colombia, and then Colombia, they were going to send me back to North Africa. So it was going to be a really mess. So I had to use some of my customer service skills that I've learned <laughs> through the years to wiggle myself where I, I last minute was able to with the help of some friends buy a ticket to like you know in the midnight hour really they were going to send me so i bought a ticket to ecuador where i had a visa for 90 days so i was able to get out of that mess stay in ecuador for a couple of weeks and then try to get to belize again and the next time i was successful in going to belize through panama and then uh, Nicaragua, then straight to Belize, uh, avoiding Guatemala. And in Belize, I was there for a couple of weeks. And then uh, I was able to get a visa to Mexico, thank God. And uh, there was a lot of Russians, there was a lot of Turks, there was a lot of, no, no, no Turks, no. Russians and a lot of East Europeans trying to get a visa there too, for Mexico. And basically, yeah, from there, it was the journey of taking a bus from Belize to Cancun, Cancun to Monterrey, Monterrey to Cabo. Uh, I found a job, a volunteering job in Puerto Escondido. I'm a yoga practitioner and I found a yoga retreat there to try to help my, with my mental health and all that stuff. So, yeah, that's good. Uh, yeah, so, and they're doing a great job. It's in the middle of the wilderness. They're really, you know, working on nature preservation and, and, and beautiful job they're doing there. And then from there, uh, Cabo San Lucas, Cabo San Lucas, I volunteered at a hotel to kind of be able to eat and, and sleep. And then from there, uh, Tijuana, and then Tijuana, I met someone earlier in, in Cancun, a Colombian, who was, all the time I was in Mexico, I was trying to do the, 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 the app, the yeah. CPV1 app. Yeah, and how was your experience with that? Because horrible, absolutely, absolutely horrible, absolutely horrible, absolutely horrible. I mean, it's just basically useless. It's useless. And I met people who've been there for two months on the app, and it didn't work. Explain to me what didn't work about it. Like, did it log you out? Did it? I wish uh, I can send you screen. I have screenshots that I can send you, so you can understand yeah. what I. So, yeah, so it tells too. you. It tells you. It tells you. You're, you're, uh, so you sign up, you put your information, your passport and all that stuff. And then basically what you're doing is you're, you're in the queue and it's, there's like a lottery system where they see how long you've been waiting, how old are you, where are you from? It's like a lottery system that randomly selects people. So, but again, you know, out of a uh, close to a hundred people in my detention cell, you know, room, everybody's saying we all tried and not, none of them you know, got an appointment. I mean, everybody wants an appointment. I mean, who, who's in the right, who's in the right, in his right mind would choose to forego an appointment and go do through all that trouble. So, yeah. 
And if we could do a little bit of math, the, eventually at some point I spoke to the supervisor of the Border Patrol Detention Center, uh, and he told me there's 1,800 people at any given point in that place. So out of 1,800 people, and if my cell, there was about six cells or something, or yeah. more than that, no, much more, much more. Six cells and then four blocks, I think. So anyhow, so, uh, yeah, I mean, if out of, in, in about out of 100, then you have nobody was able to use the, the app. Then what's, what's, what's to tell, tell out of the 1,800, maybe 99%? I mean, all of them, really, because if yeah, they did have appointments, yeah, if they had appointments, they would have been not in there, right? I mean, right. That's, that's the key, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, I mean, it's just uh, a flawed system. I was telling my wife yesterday, that's like a lipstick on a pig because, you know, you're just trying <laughs> to make it look like it's, you're doing something. But it's really, it's really like it's, there's nothing being done about it. And uh, anyhow, so I'm still dazed and confused. I mean, I'm, I'm you know, trying to understand the situation. Uh, so I literally, I was the last one to get in. And literally, I'm sitting there in front, I'm standing there at the border itself, at the, at the wall. And I'm like, what's going on? Where is the border patrol? Where is the port of entry? Where is this? I'm like confused. After finding himself unable to make an appointment through CBP-1, Amos decided to make his way to Hukumba like thousands of other migrants. And I think it's worth pointing out here that nothing that he has done up to this point is breaking any laws, right? It's not, a, it's not illegal to drive around in Mexico. It's not illegal to approach the border from the south. It, it, all of this stuff is, is the legal way to move around. No, no crimes have been committed. And it, it is, of course, legal to cross the border and present yourself for asylum immediately upon doing so, even to cross between ports of entry. Uh, it, it's at the discretion of the administration or the prosecutors to charge for, for that crossing. Uh, but that is a legal means to claim asylum. And so we'll let Amos pick up again here as he takes his first step into the United States. The first thing I see is I'm pretty sure there, there's some Fox News stuff because they were... They were so aggressive, the camera and a brand new Jeep. Uh, and they were like, hey, go, 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 shoot, shoot. And then, the, you know, ladies and dudes and everybody was running and they were running after them to shoot them with a, with a, I mean, with a camera. I mean, I mean, yeah. that's what I mean. Yeah. And uh, it, it, you can tell there is malicious intent behind the, what they're doing. It was not like uh, trying to be uh, sort of neutral or anything. They, they were just, yeah. you know, anyhow, so... I'm looking for a border patrol. I'm trying to say, hey, I'm, I'm filing for asylum. Where are you? What's going on? Nothing. There's nobody. So I'm just walking around with a, with a, uh, around the wall. I call my wife. Uh, I call some friends. Uh, thank God I still had signal. And then, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, uh, the first border patrolman that I saw, he was pissed off. He said, F you, F you, F you this. Uh, move out of my way. Fine, cool. Uh, I told him whatever I said. If I didn't like, I said, I'm sorry. And then I moved on, and he's, nobody's interested in even to talk. So, um, and then I moved closer, closer to the crowd. And uh, I don't know if that's when I saw David, but uh, it was about almost, 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 yeah. And even when I saw David initially, but then I kept going to, do, to have an idea of the whole camp. camp and the whole, like, understand what's the dynamics. I saw some National Guardsmen, I saw some DHS police, and I saw some Border Patrolmen. It's like a whole mix of people. And I think, I think there was uh, Park Rangers 
yeah. if I'm not wrong, if I'm not BLM mistaken. BLM Rangers, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. So BLM Rangers, yeah. So so it's a whole huge mix of people. Um, and right away, my my survivor instincts kind of, you know, I, I, I saw David and I saw tools and my eyes opened up because, you know, I, I worked in, a, I built my farm from scratch in North Africa and, and I have, my tools are, are, are everything to me. So anyhow, so I'm glad I did see that, that, that familiar site and I appreciate that. But you, about you, David and Caesar, you guys were terrific. And um, yeah, I mean, nobody spoke English. Nobody spoke English. Nobody. Yeah. And everybody's been treated like, I mean, I told one border patrolman, I have cows, I have sheep. I treat them better the way you treat these guys. I really do. I truly do. And they were they didn't like that kind of talk. But anyhow, so, um, yeah, I mean, uh, it got really cold. I mean, uh, fairly quickly. And right away, uh, David and Caesar, thank God, had had some tools. And we started, you know, working on getting some tents up and running. And, uh, I mean, they did most of the work, really. I, mean, I was just there helping. So, uh, and it was, uh, it was, it was... Dude, my heart was really pain, pain, giving me a lot of pain. Because in my mind, I had my 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 boy and my girl in my mind, and I'm just trying to get to to them. But I seen these kids, man. It, that was that was horrific, man. That was not right. That was not right in that cold. It was just not right. And yeah. uh, I'm telling you, it's still in my mind right now. I mean, I'm not gonna let you. It's 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 just uh, it's embedded, you know. Yeah, it affects um, all of us. Like I was there last night, and there was a little baby there, and I couldn't sleep coming home. You know, like and I. Think- I mean, you know, jeez, dude. Like you know, uh, the, the thing is this, you know. Okay, again, I told David, uh, it's not a question of left or right. The question is, so I get it. I I, I spoke to a bunch of border patrolmen. I, again, I couldn't sleep at night. Yeah. I basically kept on going after David and Caesar left. I tried to sleep. I couldn't sleep. I called my kids. They sleep at 8.40, 8.30, so I spoke to them, and then they were asleep. And then I got up, and I kept walking around. Some people had a lot of wood. Some people didn't have enough wood, So, and some people didn't want me to take some of their wood. I had to go pick up some wood and try to look, uh, every, you know, make sure everybody's fire is up and running. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then, you know, when everybody had the fire and everybody kind of somewhat settled in, I figured, hey, let me t- I mean, if I'm up, let me talk to these border patrolmen. I spoke to the first one. He was kind of, you know, not, nah, didn't want to talk, but still said a few things. Yeah. But then another one, originally from San Diego, cool guy, really cool guy. He gave me the picture. I mean, look, listen, I mean, you know, we're here to work and it's stressful. It's a lot. We're, we're trying to do the best we can. It's not our fault and it's not, you know what I mean? You know, we're. You know, and he told me, listen, you can go back to Tijuana or you can go in the United States or do whatever you want. But if I pick you up outside of this area, you're going straight to deportation. That's the bottom line. But if you stay here, you'll get to be picked up and processed and you'll have a chance to, to file for your asylum. So, again, ex- excellent information with the exception of even they don't know the process because yeah. you don't get to file for asylum in detention. In detention, they release you on your recognizance, and then later on you file for asylum. Yes. Yeah. 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 So, so, and that's a misconception because everybody is saying, everybody that I spoke to initially said, yeah, you can file for asylum right in here, but it's not true. So, um, but anyhow, so 
And then I spoke to a couple of National Guardsmen, a couple of kids that in the early 20s yeah. from New York, <laughs> from New York. And uh, I mean, you know, just, just a couple of kids. We, we started talking about hunting. We started talking about, you know, fishing and stuff like that. And uh, they were, you know, what do you expect? You know, they're doing their job. And uh, they're human beings doing what human beings do. Yeah. So, I mean, I can absolutely sympathize and understand, you know, these guys' jobs. My only beef is like, do you have to be, the, I mean, yes, you're pissed. Yes, it's a lot of work. Yes, it's frustrating. Yes, it feels like your country is invaded. Yeah, blah, blah. We get all that. But is you being mean, rude, or, or downright evil, is that going to change anything? It's not. Yeah. These guys yeah. went through freaking the Amazon. I, I mean, at some point, I swam with a crocodile. I didn't even know the crocodile was around. I'm just saying, it's so weird that they're educated and they're informed, yet they still have that attitude. It's just like, you know what I mean? It doesn't, it doesn't go yeah. anywhere. Yeah, it doesn't. It doesn't help. And like, look, it doesn't matter what you think about policy. Like, if there's a baby crying because it hasn't yeah, eaten yeah. all day, no, they get cold. They, they they became cold-hearted, and it sucks because again, I spoke to this guy from San Diego, which I really appreciate. His, you know, sort of, you know, his he his, he was very forward with me, and I appreciate that because yeah. it probably doesn't get to talk to anybody because nobody speaks English. Yeah. So, um, and then the idea is, you know. They're frustrated with the system. They're frustrated with the with the capacity, with the with the with the, with the position they're put in. Okay, I absolutely sympathize. You cannot go wrong with that. I mean, I, I mean, it's, you have every right to, to 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 be that way. Again, my beef is why do you like good morning f you, good afternoon f you, good night f you, like like what? Is this? It becomes so sad. It's just like you know, it loses its. Uh, importance even the f word yeah. is no longer important you know what i mean so yeah, yeah it's just too much too much it's very dehumanizing isn't it like everyone yeah. who participates yeah. in it gets yeah. dehumanized yeah. absolutely absolutely and i mean eventually uh i got inspired by david and caesar and i think they did a freaking amazing job i mean i just uh it was a shock in my system to see the contrast between i think it's it's the biggest necessary contrast in that specific place. You need to see the two sides of the American spirit. Right there, you have volunteers saying F you to the system, and you have bordersmen saying F you to the system. You know what I mean? Like, you know, yeah. it's, it's just a huge contrast, and that's what really gives hope for, for anything going forward. Uh, so, so I appreciate it. I don't think David and Caesar really understand how important what they're doing. It's extremely important. It's very valuable. So to me personally, it just uh, the, the shock and all, the initial shock, it just went away really quickly because I saw tools and I saw David and I, and I knew what's going on. Because I volunteered in, in, in shelters in, in LA, in Los Angeles. I volunteered yeah. at the mission uh, down at, uh, uh, you know, downtown LA, you know, on, yeah, Skid Row, if you hear of Skid Row, I've volunteered yeah. there. I, 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 mean, I know very well what homelessness looks like. So I, I, I've done Christmas service. I've done food, food, food service. Automatically, when I saw uh, David, I just completely kicked in, and I, it was a natural thing for me to, to jump aboard and help. Uh, and then, um, uh, again, I couldn't sleep. Early in the morning, like 4 or 5, I start seeing some border patrolmen coming in, and right away, the huffing and puffing starts. You know what I mean? The trawling yeah. and all that business. Okay. Yeah. And uh, initially, I mean, I, I, 
again, I hate to use the word I, but the, I helped organize the crowd a little bit because mm -hmm. they were fighting because they were uh, the PP was BP was picking up uh, 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 people that have been there that they just arrived and leaving the people that were there longer. Yeah, you know, four to five, the the ones that were that I stayed with were there for four days. They didn't get picked up, and um, so that, that it's a log logistical issue, and people were just not being organized. So we did a line demarcation line. Those who were here for three days, they need to be here. Two days, one day, da 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 da. We did that, and then yeah. the first border patrolman that showed up on a jeep started yelling at me, "You're doing our job." Blah, blah. Okay, sorry, sorry, sorry. I backed <laughs> up. I backed up. I minded my business, and then another border patrolman tells me, "Hey, listen, listen, listen. I need you to do 47 on this side, 47 on this side. I need you." Yeah. I'm yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> I'm like, "What's going on here?" I, I mean, again. I dropped my ego. I don't care as long as these guys get a chance to to get through because there was a lot of frustration where they're picking up people random and they're picking up uh, leaving people that are been there for a long time. You had families that did not want to be separated. You had uh, families that have been there longer and you had, you know, so it's just a huge mishmash of, of situations. Anyhow, so, uh, yeah, I mean, eventually on 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 the on, on, on the next day, early in the morning, we did some organizing, and it it seemed to me that we were much more fluid, and 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 uh, the border patrolman filled up the bus, and I happened to be one of them, one of the people that were picked up. Yeah. Anyhow, so. Uh, but what a story! What a journey! Right, and, it's insane. I'm still yeah, processing, man. Of course, I mean that's a huge yeah. traumatic experience, and yeah. It's just like yes, one story, and like you said, there are thousands of them. Uh, thousands, yeah. thousands. All right, that's where we're going to cut it off today, and we will pick up again tomorrow uh, to hear more about Amos's journey, how he's found himself in the United States, where he's going, and where he is now. Thank you so much. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Discover BetMGM, the betting app sports fans in the Capital Region turn to for nonstop action all winter long. Take the excitement of football, basketball, and hockey to the next level with same-game parlays, exclusive signature bets, odds boost promos, and much more. Plus, now you can sign in, place bets, and manage your cash balance under the same BetMGM account in D.C., Maryland, and Virginia. With the same username and password throughout the DMV, it's never been easier to play with the king of sportsbooks. Download the BetMGM app today. BetMGM is an authorized gaming partner of the NBA and an official sports betting partner of the NHL. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly and offer resources to help you make appropriate choices. Please gamble responsibly. BetMGM.com for terms and conditions. Must be 21 years of age or older to wager. Washington, D.C. only. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. 
Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I wanted to ask, so one of the people on the call is Emmett. Em, Emmett had helped build some other shelters. As uh, You may not know, almost, there, there are three camps, uh, maybe David shared this with you, similar to the one that you were in. There are three in different locations. Um, some of them are even colder than, than the one that you've stayed in. Um, and uh, volunteers, including myself, including Emmett, had built shelters. Um, Emmett, perhaps you could describe, like, how you sort of decided to do that and, and came up with the the shelter design that you came up with. Yeah, definitely. And uh, I just, just want to say I'm processing also, Amos, is also hearing your story and, and um, appreciating like for all of us coming to build shelters, it's, it's, it's realizing there's all these stories that we are not knowing. And, um, you know, all of us are of these lives that are so indiv- independent, individual and, um, showing up and, and meeting folks who've been through whatever they have been. And, and, uh, um, it, it like does, it does stuff to us all, you know, and I think I'm um, hearing you right now. I'm just really processing kind of, uh, what you're saying. And I hope many people hear wh- how you're framing all this. I just really appreciate how you're framing the story and how you're, um, uh, sharing both your perspective, but also what it, what it means to just be confused. Um, to think for, so for, for me, like I, I just, I felt so even after, many years of working, um, in this space, just so confused by how, or by how CBP is treating people in the, in the OADs at least in this desert right now. Um, but, uh, basically it's, it's a winter time now in, 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 in California. Um, and for the last several months, people, uh, have been kept overnight in, in the desert on the, in the borderlands, um, which, has been brutal and it has been terrible and, and, and inhumane, uh, how for CBP to be keeping people in the desert, but as it became winter, it became deadly. Um, and the risk of extreme, uh, hypothermia events, um, for, for hundreds of people became so severe that a lot of, a lot of our, you know, day in day out, uh, work to making sure people had food. And if there were babies that they um, were taken care of as needed, or if, if folks had specific health issues that we could show up for them. But, but the thought of, um, just doing that, um, and hope, you know, bringing as many blankets as we could, uh, we're bringing up blankets and tents and tarps, things to keep people off the ground. Um, you know, basically looking in our basements and asking all of our friends, like, Hey, <laughs> we're looking behind every gas station for, 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 for boxes of cardboard or whatever it is. Um, but that just didn't seem enough. It didn't, it seemed like we were actually doing a, a harm to be, to be the ones who had seen this. And, and that's something we deal with is realizing there's so many folks who just don't know what's going on. So for us to be a community seeing this and not, not taking to the next, the next level. And, and still, I feel this way, but, um, it, it felt like we were not doing, um, or we were actually doing a harm by not, by not kind of addressing the winter, <laughs> um, as it was happening. So the idea of building shelters, uh, was, was to try to, um, 
basically do do something more than just bringing out uh, supplies and letting people uh, you know fend for themselves, but creating something that might actually create uh, more of a long term uh, safety. Um, and, and then again, I mean, this is this is these are d- detention sites. We are we are working as volunteers inside of a a basically informal detention site that CBP is operating. So it's a very confusing for us to know, you know, we're here trying to be with people directly, trying to see what people are, are wanting and needing and what is their, their, their needs. But we're also kind of navigating around this very erratic uh, system that is sometimes denying us entry to these sites, um, sometimes trying to have us do things for them um, and other times kind of allowing us to be there and, you know, um, you know, bringing food because it ser- serves them, serves CBP for us to keep people alive. Um, but that's a really confusing process. So anyways, there was a lot of talk going on about, uh, making shelters and people have been assembling pallets. And one day I was, um, just talking with, with some of the other organizers and we're thinking, well, I'll just do this. I'll, I'll come back tomorrow and I'll, and I'll, I'll, we'll start, um, and so with, with some volunteers from the Dollar Lunch Club from UC San Diego, um, we set out um, and to the, the campsite we call uh, Tower 177 and started building this. And immediately, kind of as you're saying, also Amos, um, I, we had uh, about a team of 10 people from um, Colombia and, and Kyrgyzstan helping us uh, build this, this shelter uh, from, from pallets, um, cardboard, uh, plastic sheeting t- tarps and uh, James and myself and some other folks had been talking the night before what are the different shelters and using all of our outdoor experience wilderness experience and kind of putting it all together and having kind of a round table discussion like well I've seen this work before I've <laughs> I've done this before I mean this might work this might be a, this might be a nice way of using these pallets trying to find something that would be stable to um, uh, you know, withstand wind conditions it being kind of, uh, you know, resource uh, smart, uh, making sure we're not overusing uh, whatever wood we have in some sort of super intricate design, um, and also something that we could uh, we could assemble quite quickly and would be versatile. So something we could do in different different settings, and also building something and building a, a design that uh, wouldn't wouldn't be super hard for people to use. So yeah, so it just felt like we were kind of just like kind of putting putting our heads together, and that's what we came up with was basically this super shelter that was with a, has a, basically a backbone of six pallets and maybe, I don't know, James, it's possible to <laughs> link some, some, uh, photos or what, yep. whatnot, but, um, yeah, uh, putting together basically great, right. Yeah. Some sort of, uh, yurt like structure that, uh, can be kind of designed or can be changed as it would be. And especially something that anybody who's using it gets to actually have mimic their own, their own home, their own setup. So it's not something that we're kind of dictating how it needs to be used. Um, but uh, yeah, we've had a, had a really uh, positive experience and a lot of expertise from folks from, from Kyrgyzstan um, to kind of lead the way. So we brought the tools and, and other folks who um, were going to use it, uh, basically created it, them, created it shelter uh, um, themselves. Yeah. So that, 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 was our, that was our first experience. And um, uh, yeah, well. Amos's point was really a good one. And, and it's one I'd considered too. Like it, it's quite... Yeah, I don't want to compare the difficulties we encounter as volunteers to the difficulties Amos has just encountered, in, uh, has just kind of shared with us in his journey because they're not the same. But like, it can be quite different. I speak quite a few languages, but still with large groups of people who you can't speak to, and you want to connect, you want to be like, I, what's happening to you is 
it's it's disgusting and disgraceful and it's not me i'm not i don't want it to happen and and i it shouldn't be and i want to be in community with you as much as i can and so when we don't have that language the way that we can connect um one of the ways that we can connect is to yeah grab a hammer or a screwdriver or something and start building something i love it i love it you're so right you're so right james you are so on point dude no i mean you know it's just uh uh, seeing that that ryobi drill was like (laughs) heaven to me i mean i swear not to give a you know any brands or whatever i'm just saying (laughs) it's not my it's not my my favorite brand for sure but uh, (laughs) uh but but you really really i mean truly like you guys say, I mean, it's just such a, a universal sort of um, language. Like uh, as men and as women and as people, we, we want to build, we want to protect, we want to, we want to, I mean, I'm taking this journey to come to my kids and yeah. show them support and safety and protect. And it's happening, you know, right now I'm talk. I was talking to them earlier and, you know, they're excited to see their dad soon. And, you know, just that, that feeling of warmth and, I mean, this is what we do. This is what we do. And then if you want to narrow it down and break it down to the basics, it's just what it is. It's the human level. It's the human condition. I mean, really? So these guys are going to go through this pain for what? I mean, clearly they're going through, yeah. you know, worse, worse things. And then that's the whole point. That's what trying, they're trying to do. So, um, and then uh, before I forget, and then I don't hope, I hope my phone doesn't, uh, you know, die on me. Let me just give you, the detention, if you guys uh, have Please a minute, do. let me give you the, yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah, yeah. before I, you know, uh, so basically on, I think it was Monday, we, we, we uh, get r- rounded up to what is, can easily be compared to a cattle, a, a wrench cattle kind of process where, you know, here, take off your, 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 your belt and everything. Yeah, that, that's familiar, but you know, there's a little extra, the bus driver is cussing at you like it's nobody's business, and 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 you know gratuitous humiliation, and you know maybe you have one of them is nice, but the rest are just you know absolutely want to just uh, tear you down as much as they can. And um, anyhow, so we're lined up. We're onto this bus that's behind the camp, closer to Highway 80, I believe Highway 80. Yes. Yeah. You're and right. uh, uh, and basically we're lined up. We're, we're tagged. We're uh, uh, basically stripped of everything that could be "quote unquote" dangerous. We're left with only one shirt uh, in the middle of a cold morning, and uh, doesn't matter man, doesn't matter man, women, everybody is treated the same. I appreciate their their equality on that issue. Uh, so, and then we are on a bus journey that's about an hour and a half, maybe two hours, maybe more, uh, to the. Uh, I'm trying to remember this very well because it's just, you know, it's important, I guess. San Diego, uh, the San Diego sorting facility, San Diego district sorting facility, uh, AKA MCU, that's what they call it. And basically, uh, you you know, your, your stuff is sorted and anything that needs to be thrown away is thrown away. And you're uh, given, you become a, let me be clear. You become a subject. You're a subject now. You're not an alien. You're a subject, James. Make sure you understand yeah. this. You are a subject, sir. Let's be clear about the, the, the naming structure here. You are a subject. All right. So I'm given a subject number. 
Uh, and uh, yeah, exactly. I mean, I can't believe in this day and age, <laughs> I gotten used to the whole alien thing, you know, alien number, yeah. but now it's a subject number. Yeah, so right. anyhow, so we, we, we done, we've gone through that. And then, you, you know, you just look at people and the daisiness and the confusion, the confusion, elders, women, babies, it's just heart aching. And again, you have a couple of military uh, border patrolmen tall and acting like they're in the Marine Corps. They're just shouting left and right. And they're like, you know, treating people like they were disposable. So that's right there. Uh, uh, anyhow, so that's the, they call it the intake. So you're, you're doing the intake and you're lined up and you're being stripped, not stripped, searched. You're, you're searched and then your, your backpack is taken away. You open it up in front of them as if you were at the airport. And then they throw away stuff that's, they, even though they're not, what's crazy is they're, the backpack is going to be uh, zipped and they're going to be tagged and put away. So I'm not sure why throwing away food from the backpack is going to add anything or, anyhow, some things don't make sense, but I guess that's what it is. So then you're, you're, you're done with the intake, you're sit down uh, inside the central area and you're waiting to be processed. Uh, processing means uh, fingerprints, uh, picture, and then uh, you write down, they take a copy of your passport, and in there you write down the address uh, in which you will be, quote unquote, released later on. So that's that. And then basically, a couple hours later, you're assigned a detention cell. It's not, a, it's a big place. I mean, it's not a cell like a small cell. It's probably, I don't know, 20 by, I don't know. I'm, I'm bad with the distances. But anyhow, the point is, we're there. Uh, we're taken to this place. Uh, I don't know, James, but I don't know what you think of this. So so we, they don't put uh, handcuffs on us. Right. But they tell you to put your hands behind your back as you're walking. Yeah, very strange. I don't understand what's the point of that. Like, they insist on putting your hands as if they were handcuffed behind your back. Yeah. It's as you walk it, as you, as you're walking, that is a big rule. And if you don't do it, they get pissed at you. And I, I'm not gonna lie to you. I'm always testing the water and I pissed them off a number of times. <laughs> I did put my hands forward because I'm like, what are you, what are you trying to get to? You know, anyhow, so you get into your cell. Uh, mine was two a, all right. Two a yeah. uh, pod. I'm sorry. It's called, they called pods. Pod. pods. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because you know we're we're we're, in, we're into share, share uh, what is it w w uh, work share spaces basically <laughs> pods. Yeah, like your we so work. Sad. Yeah, we work. Here we go. We yeah. work. A fancy work. Yeah. Anyhow, so we were there. You're giving um, gym mats, gym mats, and then yeah. you know when we we when we all put our gym mats on the floor, imagine there is zero space in between, like the whole pod. Is covered with gym mats. No, you, you have to walk on gym mats, basically anywhere you go. All right, so that's yeah. that's the fact. And then you're giving these uh, what do you call them? This the not thermals, the the little alloy alloy foil blankets, whatever. You oh call yeah, them. the Mylar blankets. The, yeah, yeah. Thank you. Yeah, those guys. And they do kind of work, but they, for me they're too small. I mean, I'm I guess I'm a tall guy. I mean, I don't know. Uh, so either your foot are sticking out or your head is sticking out or whatever. And I'm not the only one. There's a lot of people like that. Yeah. So, uh, and then AC is blasting full speed, 
light, full bright light, 24-7. Jesus. And, uh, yeah. And then a lot of, you know, again, they teach this in school in Psychology 101. So light, 24-7. AC, freezing AC. We're only allowed a shirt, one shirt, one shirt. And then I'm talking about probably they have it on 55, 60, 60, 60. No more than 60 degrees for sure. All right. And then you have people cold and getting sick. And then uh, they clean three times a day to their credit, yeah. where we all have to get out so the cleaning crew can come in. But here's the key. They clean at 8 in the morning, at 5 in the, uh, at five in the afternoon, and at midnight. <laughs> so you can't sleep. Come on, dude. Really? Seriously? Yeah. And God forbid you ask. God forbid you ask. Because that's just not allowed. Anyhow, so midnight, exactly midnight, sharp, get out. People, everybody sleep. Everybody sleep. Get up, get up, get up, get out. And there's no, again, it's, 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 you know, we know these tactics. We read about these. This is like, you know, torture in a way, you know. Yeah. I bet you somewhere in the Geneva Convention, there's something about this. I mean, I'm sure. Yeah, Anyhow, yeah. so, so, you know, I didn't want to create too much drama the first day, James. The second day, I started testing the water. I'm like, you know, I'm being nice to everybody. Nobody speaks English, so I have to kind of speak up for people. You know, some people need to go uh, me medicine. I mean, you know, medicine or whatever. I, I speak for them, whatever. And then some people are just uh, don't understand when their name is called for it because it's misspelled, so I'll help with that. You know, in general, like, you know, I literally would walk around and ask for extra blankets and things like that. This is all I've been doing. I hope the video will come out. That we're, we're doing a few... Freedom of Information Act requests. So hopefully we can get that. Good. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Hopefully we'll we'll share that with you. Well, I mean, it takes. I mean, they're gonna oh, fight yeah. it tooth and nail. They're gonna it'll fight it tooth years. and nail. Yeah, it'll take. Oh yeah, years. exactly. Thank you. Thank you. Exactly. So anyhow, so uh, yeah, after the second day, again they give you food. I mean, food. I guess food. Yeah, they give you food. Um, the second day, uh, I started asking the question. Okay, when am I gonna get my phone call? Uh, the first person said, oh, well, I'll pass on your request. By the end of the day, I've asked like three, four times to three, four different people. So the, the pods area is manned or uh, supervised by DHS police. And then the processing in the central area is done by BP. And BP and Customs and DHS hate each other. I mean, that's just clear. They told me that to my face. They don't get along. All right. Right. So, so when you are talking to DHS police, because they're the one kind of the prison guards, they yeah. just don't then talk to BP. They don't convey the information that you're as a right. prisoner. There. So, so that's been difficult. So, so you would want to ask to go to the nurse or something. So on the way, you can try to pass on information. So anyhow, so I, I kind of located the situation. And then on the second day, I asked the Three times, I need my phone call, I need my phone call. They came out and told me, you're crazy. We don't do phone calls. Stop asking. So wow. you're telling me, I'm in U.S. soil. I, you know, I don't get to see the, 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 the outdoor 24-7. And you don't let me make a call to my lawyer or family. And that's when I just lost my, my shit. So, so the, by the end of the second day, I entered into a, 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 a hunger strike. Oh wow! My body shut. Yeah, my body yeah. shut down completely. My body shut down completely. People were 
that have no need to be constantly active. I do I do yoga. I do I did yoga. I did you know people will start following me doing activities and trying to be sharp. Uh, uh, you know, stay sharp. They saw me shut down completely. I didn't I didn't eat or drink anything. I mean, wow. completely. I shut yeah. down everything. All systems aboard. That's it. So right away, my eyes are closed. The next day, they start freaking out. They bring in the the wheelchair. But before they, you know, just to let you know, before they put me on the wheelchair, with the baton, they're just hammering me to make sure I'm, I'm this is real. They're hammering. I still have bruises. I still have like a red dot on, on my chest. You know what I mean? Yeah, so, so, yeah, I mean, you know, the, the, the kindness of their heart. Yeah. Again, they're very hateful because of where they are and what's going on. Sure. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. So, uh, yeah, so I'm taken to the nurse. The nurse tells me, what's going on? I thought, look, my body shut, has shut down. My, my wife and kids don't know where I'm at. They don't know if I'm alive or death uh, or dead. And I just can't eat or drink or anything. Listen, uh, sir, uh, it's okay if you don't want to eat, but you have to drink well, at least water. Or we're going to put the IV, for, we can give you IV or, medic or antidepressants or anti-anxiety medicine. Listen, lady, I've never had antidepressant or medication. I rarely take medication. I would not have medication. That is not a, an option. I don't want the IV. I don't want you to touch my body, period. I am. This is me, fully aware of what the consequences are. And unless I get a hold of my Laura or call my family and tell them that I'm alive and where I'm at, this is going to... Last time I did this, I did it for four or five days, no problem. So they started freaking out, James. They really, yeah. they, they called the big guns. Uh, I think he was a lieutenant or whatever the ranking is. He came in, listen, what's going on? What are you doing, man? You can't be doing this in my house. <clears throat> Again, my house. The guy owns the place. All right. Yeah. So uh, I'm like, listen, I'm done. If you don't give me my call, expect me to do this for the... I'll go to the end. I've done this against corrupt governments. And when I was arrested in Tunisia or whatever, I can do this all day long, man, all day long. So he's like, you can't do this. This is ridiculous. I have 1,800 people here. You're going to start a problem. I don't want problems here. So he takes me straight up to the central area, puts me in front of phone, give me the phone number. I give him the phone number. He dials my wife. Bam, bam, shazam. I call her. Uh, they were still asleep at 7 in the morning. Uh, they have school at 8.30. So I leave her a voicemail. Uh, I later found out that she did get the voicemail, thank God. And then she felt really good when she heard my voice and she knew what I was imagine, going on. yeah. Yeah, so I don't know what to tell you, man. You know, it, it's just a no man's land. And it's just, and dude, when, when I got to talk to the supervisor, when I escalated, because they took my DNA, like, what? I told them, look, what's going on? Why are you taking people's DNA? Like, what's going on? I told him, like, what are you accusing us for? Like, what is the accusation exactly? He said, you're not accused of anything. And what am I guilty of? You're not guilty of anything. So why are you taking my DNA? Yeah. And then when he just, because this is the guy, the main guy, this is the guy that I saw coming in on in the intake and then later on in the outtake, he's got like 20 screens in front of him. He's manning the border. He's like, you know, it's, it's the main guy. Like, it's, it's him. Yeah. So I told him, do, do you have your DNA, your own DNA taken? He said, yes, I did. Okay, I told him, if your DNA was taken, then you can take mine. That's fine. So they're taking people's DNA to put it in the database. And if you don't sign, they don't let you. They don't let you out. So you can stay there indefinitely until you do your DNA. How is this okay? Yeah. 
And you're not yeah. guilty of anything, James. You're not guilty of anything. Right. That's the key. You, yeah. so, so you're not guilty of anything. I mean, I understand if you're arrested for a misdemeanor or a felony, and sure. you, you know, or, you know, in in states they they take your DNA. I get it. But if you're there is no accusation, there is no guilty, and yet you're taking my DNA for what? For what? Yeah. So. Crazy. Anyhow, yeah, so so it was really rough. It was really rough, and, and and they were very very nasty. I mean, one lady, Miss Diaz, I will never forget her, Officer Diaz. I mean, she was cussing left and right, left and right, left and right, and then I lost it, man. When I when when she had me for I think they had me do uh, sign papers again. All right, so I was simply asking, why am I say, signing the same papers again? Do you want to leave or do you don't want to leave? Do you want to leave or do you don't want to leave? And then on the same time, James, as she talks to me, she pauses, she looks at her, uh, her colleagues, and she's smiling to them, and she's talking to them so nice. I simply thought, why are you talking nicely to your friends and you're so mean to us? Like, why? Why are you doing this? Like, what is, what is the problem? Did I, did, I, did I call you names? Did I say something bad? No, but you're not my friend. Yeah, but even if I'm not your friend, why are you cussing at me? Why are you saying these bad things? That shut her down. That totally shut her down, James. I mean, it was a completely different person after that because it was in front of her boss. It was in front of her boss. <laughs> I mean, I'm telling you, man. They're just, this is what happens when you have zero accountability. Zero. Yes. I mean, anybody, this is a basic Freudian understanding of, of psychology 101. That if you give someone ultimate power, they're going to take advantage. And, you know, I don't know what to tell you, man. I feel bad for the people in that detention because, you know, I'm not saying they're being tortured, but it's just, a, you know, the little drops of water on your head. Yeah. You know, the little, you know, after a while, you can turn some, some, there's one guy from Russia that was there for three weeks. Wow. Three weeks. There's one guy from Brazil that was there for, for a week. Come on, man. I mean, seriously, like that's too much. Yeah. That's too much. So. Yeah. That's a crazy you know. Time. It was horrific. And then when I was leaving, uh, I found out that they put the wrong address on my release form. And then you know, I don't know if you know anything about the U.S. immigration bureaucracy, James. I do. It is yeah, horrific. It is horrific. All it takes is the one wrong digit in the address. They send the paperwork to the wrong address. Oh, we did it. We sent it. We don't care. We don't care. You know what I mean? And then you basically waiting all your life. And then and that's pretty much what happened to me before when I was in the United States. And then you know they don't care. Always to Take it up with the with the U.S. Postal, Postal Service. Are you serious? Like you know, you're gonna put someone in jail and because he sent them to the wrong address. Anyhow, so anyhow, so I came back from the bus. The bus is loaded. We're leaving. I came back to her, look. You got you know you got the wrong address here. Like you know what's going on? Do you want to leave or do you want to stay? Do you want to leave? That's all. That's all they talk about. It's like a favor she's doing. It's not like a law thing. It's not the due process. No, no. I'd be more than happy to stick you in there because you're complaining about a, a, a mistake that we made on, on your on your form. It's just yeah, very there's no sad. need. The very whole sad. thing, it's it's just there's no need to to make it as cruel and as hard. And look, people have people have died uh, in the outdoor detention in in another site, not the, not the place where you are, but in San Diego, right? Like, and it, it's a tragedy, and it. it it doesn't have to happen and it doesn't have to be this undignified and yeah, I, I think maybe people will have disagreements about the 
immigration, the different immigration laws, and they might feel yeah. differently to the way I do or you do or Emmett and David do. But I don't think anyone in their right mind would really justify the way you've been treated, and and you can multiply right. that by thousands, right? And, and you, you're fortunate enough to be in, in relatively good health and not too young or not too old or, or, or not right. too sick for this to be a deadly trip or right. a, and still it's obviously had a massive effect on you and i can understand why uh, i would... mean i'm having a little bit of nightmares to be honest with you because uh what bugs me the most is those kids uh and then on top of it it's overwhelming because i was thrust in a position where sadly i mean i had to pick up for a lot of people I mean, yeah. you know, yes, it, my family tragedy, I mean, is an issue. But I mean, you know, I don't want to talk too much about what, what I did in Tunisia, but I was standing up against corruption and against bribery and things like that. And that costed me a lot of problems. And it cost me, uh, I mean, being in a blacklist in a government that's ever going negatively, you know, and, and jailing activists and jailing yeah. citizens for, for speech. It's sad that, that Tunisia, the home of the Arab Spring now is turning into another dictatorship, sadly. So, um, you know, I didn't want to use that as a reason, but I mean, it is what ruined my personal life because I was constantly being, you know, uh, harassed and, and pushed and shoved by Tunisian, you know, a-holes. Uh, and then here I am to find myself in, in, you know, like with a deja vu kind of feeling with these gratuitous insults for nothing. So that, that kind of triggered me a lot, big time, James. Yeah, and, I can imagine. Uh, uh, and then it felt like, you know, what is life worth? I mean, I know I'm coming for my kids and they're the love of my life and and then my wife as well. But, you know, I want them to remember their dad as someone who sticks up for, 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 for others. And, uh, you know, the... You know, James, the, the, the most difficult part were, was, um, David mentioned the Persian guys, the running guys. You know, I got annoyed a little bit, James, because they were really lining up behind me and holding my hand, begging me to help them get out. Yeah. And because I'm the only one that spoke the language and it felt like, you know, they didn't have any recourse. And the detention center. And I'm not gonna lie to you, uh, James. That was that was very difficult. That was very difficult. That was very difficult. I felt like when I was leaving, I was leaving friends, brothers, sisters, brothers behind, and uh, that stuck with me, dude. Yeah, I understand. It's just a uh, few people specifically that, that that really, 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 really were stuck on me, and. Uh, it's just, uh, what is this world for? What are, what are we doing all this for? I mean, these are genuine, decent human beings. This country needs as many workers and as many new citizens as possible. Instead of just shoving these people with hatred, just align them, just give them a chance, just rehab, just kind of make sure they know the language, they do all this and they're good. They all want to work. They all want to be good. Nobody that I met there is, is into drugs or anything. You know, it's just, uh, it sucks because it's like, you, it's like shooting your, your own, yourself on the foot. Uh, it doesn't make sense. 
and uh, I really felt really sad. And uh, on a on a lighter note, getting into eventually released and getting on the bus and going to uh, the central uh, the ele central elementary, I believe yeah. it's called. And yes. I, I just got out of the bus, and I can hear the voices, Amos, 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 everybody's calling. And I'm like, well, it's, it's getting dark and I, I can't see, I can't see the, 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 the people, but I found like at least 20 or 18 people that I, that were with me there. And oh, they wow. were like, they were crying and they were like, thank you, thank you, thank you. And, uh, you know, it was, it was, it was really heartwarming. It really was really heartwarming and I appreciate that the, that they uh, recognize what we did. We tried to do a bunch of Mauritanians, Colombians, uh, Mexicans, uh, Ecuadorians. Uh, I mean, you name it. I was just a Turkish, uh, an older gentleman, an Iranian. The Iranians, the same Iranians that 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 I helped get onto the bus from from Willow. The same guys. Eventually, all I found them at, at Central, and. Um, it was really nice to see them and for them to just literally jump on me almost and tell me thank you and in so many languages. I, I appreciate that. So um, I just hope all this, 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 this kind of gets somewhere where they understand that it doesn't have to be this way. It really doesn't. And we're not asking, I'm not asking either get, get more people or do this. I'm just saying there is little tweaks that are not meant to increase the immigration or or make it impossible or anything. It's just little tweaks to, to you know, to get the system a little better. That's all. That's all I'm saying, personally. Yeah, make it a little kinder. And, and I think, like, it's always that way, right? Like, it's people helping each other even when the government doesn't help them. And, like... Yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, we just got news. Oh, I was there yesterday that that all the shelters at one of the sites were torn down. So like it, it's, oh shit, we'll all have to go back and build them again. But um, yeah, yeah, you know, people will because I think we all, at least all of us here, think that people should be treated with dignity and and that they deserve a little better than they're being given currently. Um, and have you been able to reunite with your your children yet, or is that still in your future? Uh, yes, it's it's uh, kind of technically uh, on on Thursday. Uh, I'm supposed to reunite with them. I am getting there on steps. I'm financially not viable right now. Uh, I'm relying on some friends to uh, who got me up to Los Angeles right now, and then uh, we're collecting money for gas. And uh, my wife Lauren will be coming down on Thursday with the kids and then we're gonna go to her mom's in lancaster for a christmas party that she does and then from there we'll, we'll make it back up to pismo and in pismo uh my wife was sheltering in uh at her sister's but the house is overcrowded and there's no way i can stay there so i'll be that's something that i'm trying to figure out and where to stay and i don't have friends up there and don't have anything uh, so that's uh, it's a problem that I'm having to deal with. And on the same time, I was given April 12th as a court date uh, in Vanais, and I have to uh, deal with a lawyer and we contacted lawyers and they're expensive. The pro bono lawyers uh, that we called, uh, they, they don't take, they're not taking new cases. Uh, 
so it's, it's um, I knew it was going to be difficult, uh, but when you're in it and it's, uh, you think that it will be kind of a little better, but uh, it's, it's definitely not looking good. But, you know, to be close to my kids somehow, and that's what matters to me. But uh, it's just a struggle. I was at Congressman Schiff's office. I mean, what kind of resources you have for immigrants? I just need a little bit of a, you know, start so I can get back on my feet. Uh, and I kept them in touch since I was in Africa through the trip. They're the only Congress office that at least interacted with us. Yeah, with me and my wife. But you know, she looked at me from uh, from behind the glass door, and she said, uh, "Good luck." Uh, uh, she sent me the county immigrant affairs office, and uh, you know, link, and she told yeah. me, "Good luck," and then uh, and said bye bye, and that's all that she did. So it's uh, uh, it's tiring, and, and not giving up, of course, but uh, it's just. It's very difficult, James. Very yeah, difficult. no, it, it's yeah, it shouldn't be this hard or this complicated or this taxing, especially when your family yeah. are here already. Um, I'm just trying to be. I, I, I don't. I mean, my wife is on welfare, and they keep cutting her welfare smaller and smaller. And she has we have two kids. I just need a chance to get up, get back on my feet, and be a good father. To work and do, I can't work right now. I'm not allowed to work. Yeah. And I have to find money, money for the lawyer. I have to make, find money for me and my kids. It's it's really quite a humbling experience, and I know I don't want to rely on anybody, but I mean, it's just it's just uh, it's hard. It's hard. Yeah, no, it is, and like I don't know how people are expected to pay for their legal representation when they're also expected not to work. It's just it's a system that seems to design to be as yeah. cruel and complicated as possible. Yet, you, you know, the jobs are available. <laughs> yeah. The jobs are available, James. I mean, I contacted about yeah. four or five places. Uh, my, my previous uh, work experience in, in, in LA and in, in California was logistics and car rental and stuff like that. I called my previous bosses. They all told me, come over. Like, you know, get your stuff figured out and come over. We'll find a job. So we have plenty of vacancies, basically. I mean, you know. So, um, uh, but you know, here you are. Here you are. Here you are. Yeah, man. Look, it's it's I've I've heard so many of these stories, but they don't stop upsetting me. Um, and I'm glad in a way because you know they're bad and they shouldn't. Yes. They should be upsetting to everyone who hears them. And I'm sure everyone who hears this will want to do whatever they can to make this a little easier. Are there like any orgs or nonprofits that have been helping you since you've got in the U.S. that you think? People should. Oh man, nothing, nothing. Yeah. I mean, it's been, you know, those who call very centric as far as Asian Americans or this or that. It's very specific. Yeah. But yeah, uh, migrants from just, Africa have the hardest yeah. time of everyone. It's, yeah. it's been I'm telling you, no joke. And if you're a father trying to make it to your kids and trying to, you know what I mean, do right by your kids, doesn't mean anything. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. So yeah, that's terrible, man. That's, yeah, yeah, yeah. I hate this to hear it. This is the first Christmas for this is the first Christmas for the kids outside of their where they grew up. I really wanted to make it as family friendly and, and happy as possible, but I don't even have the 
capacity to give them gifts or anything, or 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 even I don't know. It's just gonna be hard. But... Yeah, fuck, man. It is. Yeah. Um, yeah. Man, sorry. That's. that's I know crazy. it's okay. I mean, no, I'm just yeah. a. Dr- I'm just a drop in, in, in an ocean of of, uh, of despair when it comes to immigrants, and I'm I'm getting messages from some of them in New York, some of them in uh, North Carolina, some of them in uh, uh, in Illinois, a uh, couple in California. I mean, they're they're still desperate for for help, and especially with language and all that. So. You know, I'm grinding and I'm doing the best I can, but um, you know, it's yeah. a reality check. It's a reality no. check, James. Yeah, no, it's 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 really. I mean, it's sickening how quickly you can be and like cut yeah. down to nothing when the state doesn't care about you. Yeah. Amos, I want to thank you so much for giving us your story and your time and being so open with us because I think that's the only way that this stuff changes. Is that people here, like num- numbers are great. And and your story is one of tens of thousands. But I think sometimes yep. we need to hear individual stories to understand true. The, the human impact of this. True, um, true, true. And look, we'll stay in touch. You have my phone number. Absolutely. Anytime, Absolutely. anything you need, anything we can do for you, we're here. Yeah, I mean, I can't, I can't wait to come down to the border. I'm not giving up on the border, dude. I'm not. I want to bring, uh, at some point, my kids to see the price. And then I want to contribute. I want to find a way to give back. I want to, I know I can't do it right now, but it's in my mind, my mind. And I, I know I, I'm not going to give up on that, on that, on that dream of coming back there and continue to help with the yeah. volunteers. That's very kind of you. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, when you come down, let me know. I'll bring some Ryobi tools and we can, uh, we can build some stuff. <laughs> Sounds good. Yeah. Sounds good. Fuck. I mean, sorry. I, I'm just like, I'm just for processing. Um, yeah, me too. For processing me. this and like, um hearing Amos say all this is like fuck like that's that's the conversation right just what, what he's saying and it's accountability is human nature like something in the way that he was saying that I was just like taking a pause on everything that I wanted to share um because yeah, um I really like it hit to the core of the, like my own frustration with our response is it's not getting to the point that like uh what, what he was what he was sharing I don't know the words right now to, to say that my, my mind is now totally mushed um we'll end it there i do want to give both of you a chance to plug any uh and all organizations that you think can help and because the people are going to listen to this will break up into two parts uh uh, people will want to alleviate the suffering and and there are people including yourselves and myself trying to do that so uh if there's an organization that you'd like to plug fundraiser you'd like to plug please do well, just uh, the way the conversation ended, um, the thing that I was thinking is, uh, you know, just a, a uh, you know, anybody listening to to the to what Amos has said, just one one very small but perhaps meaningful thing would be to uh, do something to enable him to buy some presents for his kids. I think uh, that would be pretty cool. Hey, we'll be back Monday with more episodes every week from now until the heat death of the universe. It Could Happen Here is a production of Cool Zone Media. For more podcasts from Cool Zone Media, visit our website, coolzonemedia.com, or check us out on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find sources for It Could Happen Here updated monthly at coolzonemedia.com slash sources. Thanks for listening. 
Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. There's plenty to celebrate in March and ex- Craft Month with the perfect pizza at home class from Craftsy. And anytime is right to listen to iHeartRadio's iHeartCountry Radio. Discover more shows and movies for free. This is Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History Class. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new car. Like a legendary Camry built for performance and available with all-wheel drive, you can count on your new Camry to get anywhere you need to go. Or check out an affordable and reliable Corolla with a trim for every lifestyle. From the hip sedan to the sporty hatchback, there's a Corolla built just for you. Check out more national sales event deals when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota. Let's go places.